when I was a kid, Mikey Bright's mom, she made these cupcakes for bake sales. And the way she made, they were like chocolate cupcakes and she would like dig out the sort of top of the cupcake and put in whipped cream and then put the top back on. And like, man, Grace Bright, if you were listening to this, I remember those cupcakes so well. And like my mom was always like, sign up for plates. Like make sure you can sign up for like plates or soda, like forget it. And if you have to do something, box brownies, but like really you got to get the sheet first so you can get the plates. And I remember being like, when I have kids, like I'm going to be the mom who makes the cupcakes. Mm-hmm. And then I had kids and I was like, sign up for the plates because you can't <laughs> actually be the, like you can't, like that wasn't, and that's no shade on, on like Bright's mom as no shade on my mom. It's just like, there isn't time in the day for most of us to be like both hand making cupcakes and also working a full-time job. Figuring out what are the things that you feel you need to show up for mm-hmm. and that are the ways that, that are going to serve why you became a parent and what you want to be showing up for for your kids. I think that's, that's the most important thing. Hi, listeners. This is Luis Rodriguez, one of the hosts of the 80,000 Hours podcast. Today's guest is Emily Oster, who's a bit of a celebrity among the parents at 80,000 Hours, who basically say Emily's books are really the only books about pregnancy and parenting that take an evidence-based approach to what feel like the extremely kind of high-stakes decisions that come up constantly when you're expecting a kid, and then even more so when you're raising one. Um, So these are questions like... Lots of doctors will warn you about taking antidepressants while pregnant, but what reason is there actually to think that doing so has negative effects on your child? And also, tons of women, myself included, have this belief that getting an epidural during childbirth is somehow bad, either for the mom or for the baby or both, um, or somehow just morally. uh, But how bad is it really? And so to answer these questions, Emily looks at really high quality published studies. So ideally experiments, and if not natural experiments, and she doesn't come in with preconceptions about whether, say, exclusively breastfeeding is beneficial or drinking alcohol during pregnancy is harmful. And spoiler, Emily's take is that lots of people probably obsess a bit too much about how individual parenting decisions affect kids' I don't know, outcomes, uh, with only a couple of exceptions. Um, Then, in addition to questions about pregnancy and parenting, we also talk about the impact of children on your career and on your relationships. So do parents work less? Do they earn less? How much less? And does delaying childbirth reduce the negative impacts on your career? And if so, how does delaying childbirth affect your chances of getting pregnant? So this interview is especially for folks who are already parents, uh, who are expecting parents, people who want to have kids, and also, I guess, for people who might want to have kids, but who are unsure and kind of want to know the empirical evidence on how kids can affect your personal life and how much impact you can still have with your career when you're also raising kids. Um, But it might also be of interest to anyone who wants to have an opinion on the mommy wars and who enjoys research conclusions that run starkly against conventional wisdom and what people will hassle you and tell you to do. Okay, before we dive in, I also wanted to briefly mention that the 80,000 Hours advising team currently has capacity to speak to more people one-on-one about their career decisions. So I'll share more details after the interview, but if you can't wait until then, you can learn more and apply at 80,000hours.org speak. Applying takes just 10 minutes. All right, without further ado, I bring you Emily Oster.
Today, I'm speaking with Emily Oster. Emily is an economist at Brown University and the author of three hugely popular books, Expecting Better, Crib Sheet, and The Family Firm, which provide kind of evidence-based insights into pregnancy and early childhood, really kind of challenging conventional wisdom and offering parents data-driven guidance on important and incredibly divisive questions that parents and soon-to-be parents face all the time. Um, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Emily. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to to talk. Cool. So I hope to talk about the impacts of having kids on your career and then also the impacts of pursuing an ambitious career on your kids. But first, um, I'm not a parent yet, though I do hope to be in the next few years. But a thing that I've heard a lot about and that makes me very nervous uh, to become a parent is the mommy wars. Uh, can you explain what the mommy wars are? The mommy wars, I would say, is a catch-all term for the pressure and judgment that parents put on themselves and each other. So if you think about the canonical idea of the person in the playground who says, oh, I see you're using formula. Is that a bottle? Or says, your kid is three and they're still not potty trained. Or says, your kid is three and you force them to be potty trained. Those are the mommy wars. It's all of the, again, judgment, shame, talking about the the ways that we're doing this and telling each other that we're doing it wrong. It's that. Yeah. I guess as a non-parent, I find it, um, and I'm sure this will, I'll feel silly feeling this way in retrospect, but um, I find it kind of hard to imagine becoming really judgmental of other parents because I have this feeling of like, uh, seems extremely hard. I don't think I'm going to do an amazing job. I think I'm just going to barely be doing enough. Um, but maybe it just happens to everyone once you experience parenthood. Did you become more judgmental of other parents after you became a mom? Oh, for sure. Everyone does. <laughs> and and I think that the way I would describe it is when you have a kid and you're trying to figure out what to do with them, you have never wanted to get something right so much. Right. And it's in a way that's difficult to describe. I was thinking as you were saying that, could I give you an example of a thing you might that might help you understand how much you care about getting it right? But it's like, no, there isn't anything like that. It like feels high stakes in a way that almost nothing else in our lives has. And it's that desire to get it right that I think is what underlies the desire to judge other people. It's just if you're doing it differently from me and I want to get this right so much, it must be that you're wrong because it has to be that I'm right and that I'm just the rightest and my right is the right <laughs> for everybody because it's so important to do this right. this thing. And I, I think that's where, it, that's where it comes from. In some ways, it comes from a good place. It comes from this wanting to be the best parents that we can be. It's hard to accept that you're, you're right is not everybody else's right. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything in particular that you were like, I, whatever, don't love that I'm I'm a part of this whole judgmentally thing, but I'm super judgmental of X when I see other parents doing it? I think that there were more of those things when I was less in it. Uh, you know, at this point, I talked to so many parents who were doing things so many different ways, and I've spent so much time in that literature that there aren't many things. I mean, there are a few cases like I don't think that physical punishment is a good idea for kids. I don't think it achieves what people aim, and I don't think it's right in an ethical sense. That's a personal belief. It's not so much that I would judge other parents for doing that, but if you asked me, is there something that you don't agree with, that is an example. But the broad range of things in the world, 
now that I've spent enough time in this space, I would say mostly no. Yeah. Okay. Okay. The closest I've gotten to having a sense of what this feels like, and I'm worried, I'm worried it's going to be, um, I don't know, maybe the wrong thing to say, but I, uh, recently got a puppy and I care loads about making the puppy happy, helping the puppy flourish and just becoming like a good dog that like isn't anxious and, uh, that doesn't have separation anxiety when we leave. And, uh, I've learned a bunch of things like positive reinforcement training is great. A negative reinforcement training is terrible. And if ever someone negatively reinforces their dog in some public space, I'm like, don't they know that's terrible for them? And obviously a dog is very, very different from a human baby. I do feel like I get a tiny bit of the high stakes next of it. It's like going to affect this dog for the rest of their life. Absolutely. I think it's not as dissimilar as people might think. What you have described is very much what it is like to parent. A difference, there is a difference in the stakes, probably. And there's a difference in the number of things. Mm, mm -hmm. So you described a couple of things, but there are many aspects of dog ownership which are just, you just do it that way. And in parenting, every single thing is subject to this. What you feed them, when you feed them, when you introduce solid foods, where they sleep, what they sleep with, who sleeps in the room with them, when do you sleep train them, at what age, you know, what are you doing while you're breastfeeding them? If you're breastfeeding them and you're texting, is that, somebody asked me that the other day, is it bad to breastfeed and be on my phone? Apparently that's called brexting. Is it bad? <laughs> is brexting bad? So it's the whole range of things, a million of those dog examples, but imagine higher stakes for every single one. And there are 50 times as many and that's parenting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that makes sense. It sounds terrifying. Um, it is funny that you mentioned brexting because I just asked my dog trainer friend, is it bad that I'm texting while I'm playing with my puppy? <laughs> like, will my puppy feel neglected? Um, so anyways, again, a million differences, I'm sure. But uh, but maybe there is there's a bit to that. <laughs> More sim, you're gonna be you're gonna be so ready. I only in my house, we only have snails. I have two kids <laughs> and a lot of snails, and snails are not like children. Nice. So. And I bet you're very judgmental about how other people raise other their people snails. Other people raise their snails, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, yeah. hundred percent Feeding them carrots instead of cucumbers, which obviously <laughs> they like more. Obviously, that's going to screw them up for life. <laughs> totally. Okay, well, let's dive into some of your books. I guess maybe one final thought before we get into it is um, it is just wild to me in reading them how often the the advice or like the views people have, um, they're not just like, is this a bit better or is that a bit better? It's like, is this thing good or will it ruin your child's life? And so I feel like that is part of the high stakesness of all of these questions that we're about to talk about. It's such a good instinct. I think you're exactly right. That when we talk about these choices, there's two different things you might ask of the data. One is, is one of these things like directionally sort of in a statistical sense better than the other. Mm -hmm. And the second question you would ask is, is it big? Is it a big effect? Right. And in almost no case, is it a big effect? We're arguing about, is there any effect? And when we argue about it, people want to say, if there's any effect, the effect must be infinitely large. They sort of miss the second question about how big it is. And so every debate is like, if you do this, either your kid is going to be ruined forever or be an un, you know, unyielding genius. And it's like, well, actually, it really doesn't matter. 
very much, even if it matters a little bit, it's not enough to not be outweighed by other things in many cases. So it's a very good insight. Totally. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm curious and and hopefully we'll come back to it, but I'm curious which things do have big effects. Um, But yeah, good to keep in mind that for lots of these, we will probably be talking about small differences. Okay. Let's talk about your book, Expecting Better, um, which is about kind of uh, conception and mostly pregnancy, what to expect when you're expecting. And I should note that a bunch of my questions here are actually coming from my colleague, Kieran, and his wife, who are about to have a baby in less than a month. I've heard warnings about taking antidepressants during pregnancy and while breastfeeding. This is of particular interest to me. Uh, I'm on an antidepressant and it makes my life so, so much better. What's the evidence on this? Antidepressants are what I think is a really tough but good example of where we don't talk enough about trade-offs and where the data isn't that good. So there are a lot of women who are on antidepressants during pregnancy On the one hand, we know that this is a medication that can pass through to the placenta. That's true of almost any medication. There are a few exceptions. But there is no systematic evidence to suggest that this would cause problems for the fetus. The data is not so extraordinary that I would say we could rule it out, right? It's not that you could say we we know from large randomized trials that all SSRIs are completely fine. I think the data is reassuring. It's not perfect. Mm-hmm. For some people, they will look at that and say, well, I can't be sure. And so I'm going to go off the antidepressant. And some doctors, I think, will say, well, you know, to be as safe as possible, you should go off your antidepressant. What I think that misses is the fact that, like, people aren't taking antidepressants you know, for shits and giggles. They're taking them, <laughs> taking them because they make them feel better. And there is a really important conversation to be had for every individual about, you know, should I stay on these or not? And I think most doctors realistically will tell you that you should stay on them if they're working for you. Um, and sometimes people will try to dial down the dose a little bit uh, if that seems if that seems feasible. But it's a, like a really good example of where nuanced joint decision-making is kind of necessary to make the right choice. And where this phrasing of like, well, to be as safe as possible really misses something because it's kind of putting an idea of safety having like a single vertical about safety. Totally. It's like, actually, what's safe for me as a person is to be on this medication because that is what is helping me, helping my mental health, doing all this other stuff for me. So that's a part of safety too. Yeah. And even broadening the definition of safety for the for the fetus, where um, me being a well and happy person uh, might have other impacts on how I'm able to live and thrive as a person carrying a baby around and then raising one. Absolutely. And it's the same thing could be said about breastfeeding. Again, same thing, you know, SSRIs, they pass through breast milk, not any obvious reason to think they would be problematic for, for a fetus. Also super useful for treating postpartum depression, which is also not good right, for your baby. So, you know, again, the idea that somehow like, I feel like we're often in these conversations sort of pursuing like the first best Right. And saying like, well, the best thing would be if you were a person who didn't suffer from depression. It's like, okay, but like that's not available. Like, so right, I agree. That would be great. I, I agree. And also, can I have a pony? <laughs> but like right now I have, I need the antidepressant. I don't have a pony. It's like, what are we going to go from there? And I think that's just that part of the conversation is so often missing. Mm-hmm. Is there like a specific mechanism by which people think that antidepressants might harm babies? Not really. 
I mean, it's just, we don't know that. I mean, the antidepressant example of my senses, we don't know that much about how they work right. in the brain at all. And so it's like one of those things, like we don't know how much we work in your brain, how it like, just hard to, just hard to know. Right. Okay. So taking medications could be complicated. We especially don't know how antidepressants work. And so we're especially unsure if they'll have an effect. But there is good reason to think that being very depressed is bad with a newborn baby is, is bad. Yes. Uh, okay. Good to know. Yeah. Moving to another one. What's the evidence on drinking alcohol while pregnant? So on the question of drinking heavily during pregnancy, it's very clear that consuming a lot of alcohol many drinks at a time during pregnancy can lead to uh, to physical birth defects. Uh, fetal alcohol syndrome can also probably lead to behavior problems, uh, effects on cognition. And so that's a kind of pretty clearly established fact. When we look, however, at occasional drinking, so even say like up to a drink a day in later trimesters, we just do not see evidence of the same kinds of impacts. So you can look at large studies, mostly in Europe, where this sort of kind of drinking behavior is much more common. And we just don't see much, we don't see anything really in the way of differences across kids when we look at cognitive test scores or we look at behavior, which is where we'd be looking for uh, for these kind of impacts. So I write about this in, in Expecting Better. I talk through the data in like a lot more detail than we can go through here. And, and I when I was writing the book, I spent even more time. So there's, you know, a 50-page appendix behind behind the appendix behind the appendix where you really sort of try to, to dive in. And some of the studies are are better than than others. But I think the evidence is pretty compelling in the direction that there isn't significant impacts at these lower levels. Does that mean everyone is going to want to consume the occasional drink during pregnancy? No. I think for many people, it's like, you know what? Like, this isn't for me. And then there'll be people who will say, you know, I would love to have a glass of champagne on my anniversary, and you know that's uh, that's something that would improve my life. And those are both feel to me like valid choices, given what we see in the data. Okay, and so the data we have is primarily from areas where it's relatively more common to have a moderate amount of alcohol while pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, can you say more about what's being compared? Is it people like in a country, in one country where some people drink, some people don't, and we know very specifically uh, who those people are and collect data on those kids' outcomes? Yeah, so it would be something like, you know, there's a very large study in Denmark, it's like 100,000 people, you've got information on like how their reported drinking behavior in pregnancy, and you have the outcomes in their kids for their kids later, and you have categories of people, you know, some of whom are drinking quite a lot, uh, some of whom are not drinking at all, and some of whom are drinking, you know, like up to seven drinks a week, or they sort of categories, and you can graph out thinking like things like cognitive scores or behavioral scores across these, these categories. Um, that's the kind of data we rely on for most of this. Yeah. And is it the case that there are enough people in the category of drinking moderately, but not super heavily, that we'd be able to pick up on some smallish effects? So these sample sizes are big if you aggregate across everything. Um, and this is a pretty common level of drinking. So the U.S. is is actually quite unusual in the sense that we have a much larger concentration of drinking behavior. This isn't about pregnancy. It's just a general comment. We have a much larger sort of concentration of people who are completely abstinent and people who drink a tremendous amount. Much of the, the sort of sample in Europe would be right in, like, more in the middle, uh, more in the middle of this. Mm -hmm. As the sample size grows, you can rule out smaller effects. 
the smaller an effect you want to find, the larger your sample needs to be. And so in an ideal world, you would have a randomized trial of a million people on either in either treatment arm, and you could accept or reject very small impacts. We don't have that. And that means there could be very small impacts in either direction. Actually, the directional effects of this go sort of, in some cases, go the other way. That's probably also a selection impact. But, you know, it's like, it's just, it's very difficult to rule out, in any case, to rule out small effects of anything. And I think that's, that's just the reality of evidence. That's just the reality. And then I think, again, you want to ask, like, if someone told you that having, you know, an occasional drink would, on average, lower your kid's IQ by 0.00001 IQ points, you could say, well, I'll take every 0.0001 that I can. But I think you also have to accept there's a lot of things you're doing that are probably mattering at that scale. So so like with everything we talk about in parenting, I think it's worth thinking about the size of the impacts, not just whether they there is anything in the space. Yeah, yeah, right. But do you put any weight on the argument that Okay, so we know heavy levels of drinking do cause negative impacts on a fetus. And so it'd be kind of surprising if those negative effects just kind of cropped up at heavy levels of drinking. You'd, I don't know, I'd personally expect it to be the case that like there are big effects at heavy levels and maybe more moderate ones at moderate levels of drinking. And maybe it's hard to pick those moderate effects up in, in a study because uh, maybe they're reasonably small effect sizes, but but they might still be there and they might still be important and meaningful. Yeah. Does that does that argument hold weight for you? So I think that there are like biological reasons having to do with how you process alcohol that make that extrapolation a bit more complicated than you might think. So as you your body is able to process this in your liver, it's passing into your bloodstream as you're not processing it in your liver, and then that is passing in. So in some sense, like relationship and the concentration that I think is means that the argument you are making is not obvious in theory. The fetus is able to process some of these components as well. So I think it's more it's more complicated than that. But I think that is for some people sort of like, you know what? Like that idea, that's it for me. I don't want to do this, which is of course completely like that is a matter of individual choice. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I It hadn't occurred to me that there could be a thing where there is an amount of drinking that like the body can just process before it starts having damaging effects. I mean, it's the same with like, you know, alcohol is generally a sort of complicated topic, but as as people, if you look at the relationship between drinking and health, there is a much relationship at low levels of of drinking. Um, if anything, some people would say in some cases it goes the other way. And then at high levels, there there is. So sure. Okay. Kind of similar. How about caffeine? This one scares me because I very much depend on my caffeine. <laughs> so caffeine is actually quite an interesting case because the the particular concern that's raised with caffeine is miscarriage. So sort of concern that excessive ca- caffeine consumption in the first trimester in particular might lead to increased risk of miscarriage. And so the data, first of all, I should say, like, reassuringly, almost no data suggests a link between, like, two cups of coffee a day uh, and miscarriage. So if you're sort of, like, in that range, there's basically nothing in the data Mm -hmm. that would suggest it's an issue. As you extend up to, you know, six, eight cups of coffee a day, you you do start to see some correlations with miscarriage risk. And I, I say correlations there because there are couple of things that make us very skeptical about there being a causal relationship between the caffeine and the and the miscarriage. So one is there's a very obvious confound with age. 
uh, which is actually hard to completely control for. So older women tend to drink more coffee. Miscarriage is also more common in older women for reasons that have nothing to do with coffee. The second much more like pernicious issue is that women who are nauseous are less likely to miscarry. Just there's a relationship between nausea and miscarriage risk. Um, There's a level of hormones that makes you, if you're nauseous, you're less likely. Not that people who aren't nauseous are necessarily going to miscarry. I always want to say that, but there is a correlation there. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you avoid with nausea is coffee. It's like one of the most nauseating things, particularly because people often have it like on an empty stomach first thing in the morning. And a very common way for nausea to appear is like when you first wake up you don't feel good, and then you don't just want to drink a cup of coffee on an empty stomach. And so what we see is then people reduce their caffeine consumption if they're nauseous, and then they don't miscarry. But actually, it's like this sort of thing in the background that has nothing to do with the coffee. And when you try to suss all of those out, I think it's basically coffee is fine. Okay. Um, Right. Until maybe six to eight cups, which... Uh, is a it's lot just a coffee. lot. It's a lot. So if you have eight, eight cups before you get pregnant, if you're having eight cups of coffee, like try to cut down. That's like too much coffee, you know? Try to like, <laughs> no, I don't want to be judgmental, but you could say like try to cut down a little bit. But if you're having three cups of coffee a day, I don't think you need to, you know, freak out. Okay. Yeah. I guess is there anything that someone definitely should or shouldn't do while pregnant? Because it seems like a lot of the points in the book are like, X uh, is said to be terrible for your fetus. In fact, um, the evidence doesn't support that that much. I mean, I think there are, in the in this category of kind of behavioral stuff, I would say one thing is smoking. So there's pretty clear evidence that smoking uh, cigarettes uh, is bad. And for reasons that we understand, um, it kind of shrinks some of the vessels and makes less stuff go through the placenta. And so uh, it tends to be associated with lower birth weight. Mm. Um, It's probably the most significant impact. And then there are some of the forbidden foods, not all of them, but some of them that you probably want to be somewhat careful about. Um, Anything that's like currently linked to listeria, which is a very bad illness is an example. It's like raw shellfish or not great for various reasons. Um, so there are a few things like that, but it's a, sm- it's a smaller list than most people get. Okay. Do you mind uh, listing those, those things? Okay. Rare meat and poultry. That's linked to toxoplasmosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, unwashed vegetables and fruits. You should always wash your vegetables and fruits, but you should like wash them more during pregnancy because they get dirt on them. They can have stuff. Uh, raw milk cheese. So raw milk cheese is one of the more consistent links with listeria, which is very bad. And then uh, I have deli turkey on this list. Um, of the deli meats, it's the most listeria linked because stuff likes to grow on turkey. Okay. So those are the things that actually likely have an effect. Well, yes. Those are the things that I have <laughs> that I would say there's a legitimate reason to think you would want to be more cautious about during pregnancy. It's still true so for something like listeria, which is kind of the most significant of the risks during pregnancy, it's really, really rare. I see. Okay. It's really rare. So in in a sense, you wouldn't say like, oh, for sure, if you eat deli turkey, you get listeria. Like almost nobody gets listeria. It's very uncommon. It just shows up at random. But it is probably a little bit more risky in pregnancy than elsewhere. So and all these things are just about trade-offs. Okay. Makes sense. 
Um, so I guess it seems like there are a bunch of things you might not want to do when you're pregnant, but there's also a window of time when you're pregnant, but you don't know you're pregnant yet. Um, so I'm curious how risky that period is for your baby and if there's anything you can do about it. So people call this the two-week wait. If you think about the way the menstrual cycle, step back for a second, you think about the way the menstrual cycle works, you get a period and then about halfway through your cycle, which for most people would be around 14 days, you ovulate. An egg is released. If there is sperm available at the time and they meet up and they fertilize, there's fertilization. And then that travels down the fallopian tube and it implants in the uterus. And at that point maybe around the time of your missed period or sort of shortly before, you will test positive for pregnancy. There's those two weeks, like between ovulation and when you miss your period. In that time frame, which people sometimes call this two-week wait, again, you don't know if you're pregnant. All of the cells at that point are undifferentiated. So the way that this works is the egg is fertilized, it splits, it splits, it splits. Eventually, it starts the cells start differentiating. Some of them become the brain, some of them become the spine. That happens, you know, around two, three weeks. Until that point, they're all undifferentiated. What that means is if you kill some of those cells with a behavior, and an example of this behavior would be a very heavy alcohol consumption during that period might kill some of those cells. One of two things will happen. Either the embryo, at that point it's a blastocyst, will not implant and you will never become pregnant or the cells will replace themselves because all the cells are the same and everything will be fine. So at that point, there's a little bit of an all or nothingness to this, right? which is that either it doesn't result in a pregnancy because of some behavior or uh, everything is fine. Once you, you know, hit past that, then some kinds of behaviors, heavy drinking being a classic example, can impact the fetus in the long term, because as things differentiate, they can't replace each other. So if a part is damaged, then it may be damaged you know, forever. So that's the two-week wait science. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So it's basically like you might think you never became pregnant um, is the kind of worst case. And if you're trying really hard, that might mean that drinking heavily is is maybe not worth doing for you, even though it wouldn't directly result in a fetus with major issues. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think, again, like there's other reasons we talk a lot about drinking in this. There's other reasons why you shouldn't be binge drinking that's not good for you, like full stop as a, as a person. But th- there are other things in that space. Cool. Okay. Okay. Is there anything you've learned about since publishing Expecting Better that relates to pregnancy that you'd now put in if you're writing it again? <laughs> I have written it again many times. Uh, so, so Expecting Better came out in 2013. And I've revised it a bunch of times. And sometimes that's, you know, updated studies. There's a bunch of updating to our recommendations about sleep. And then there are, there are sort of technological innovations. So relative to when I was publishing this book, our technologies for prenatal testing have improved tremendously. And so the newer versions of the book are different on that dimension just because the technology is different. But most of the technology for having babies is pretty much the same. Yeah. Coming out of the same area as before. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Any any of those technological changes worth, worth highlighting? Uh, anything feel like, oh, I really wish I'd known that? Or like if I were pregnant now, I'd really want to think about this. 
genetic testing is the most interesting space. Basically, so sort of before about 2015, if you wanted to detect in a Down syndrome or one of these more common genetic issues, it kind of like two options. One was a series of ultrasounds and blood tests that would tell you some information, but kind of weren't perfect. Um, they're sort of like measuring different neck folds and using that as a signal. Um, they had a lot of false positives, a lot of false negatives. Or you could do an amniocentesis or something called the CVS test, both of which are kind of invasive tests, which carry potentially some risk, but would tell you for sure. They've like let you sequence the genes. Mm -hmm. In the like 2014-2015 era, they made a huge advance in something called cell-free fetal DNA technology. Basically, in the mom's bloodstream, there are fetal cells uh, moving around. So you share blood with your with your fetus, and so your some of your fetal cells are in your bloodstream. And the they advance the technology such that they can take some of mom's blood and basically isolate those cells. Wow. Isolate them isn't quite the right word. They can they can do things with the blood. That's also not a technical term. Uh, <laughs> they can do things where they can learn things about the fetal genome from the mom's blood. And I think the simplest way to explain that is to say, like, if you wanted to know if you were having a boy or a girl. Mom's got two X chromosomes. If there's a bunch of Y chromosomes floating around, I guess it must be the baby. And there's like a more advanced version of that for figuring out this other stuff. Uh, and so that that has totally changed how we do this sort of genetic sequencing stuff because you can tell much more from a simple blood test than you could from these like non-invasive tests before. So that's that's kind of a big advance. And, and it's led to a lot of, I think, quite interesting discussion because initially it was used only for detecting gender, but also... Down syndrome, and there's two other common trisomies that are you know, relatively common. Now they're using these tests to detect a lot of other kind of rare, potentially not even meaningful genetic conditions resulting from different kinds of micro deletions. And there's a bunch of companies basically taking advantage of kind of the anxiety-prone pregnant people to do these tests. The tests have an enormous amount of false positives for reasons that just have to do with how testing is constructed. And so there, there's a lot of controversy around this, this particular space. Okay, so it's something like some of these companies are offering tests that might show that the fetus has some kind of disease, but there are enough false positives that it might be wrong, but then that's going to cause uh, loads of anxiety and different questions. Exactly. And like because these diseases, these things that they're now looking to detect are very, very rare, it's like even if you tested positive, there's still a 99% chance your kid doesn't have it. Wow. Right? So it's not like you might like there's a, still a 10% chance they might have it. It's like almost everybody with a positive test is actually fine because the thing is so rare and there's some false like some small false positive rate it kind of multiplies up the people who don't have it. So that's an application of Bayes rule. <laughs> yeah, favorite. Nice. My favorite of the of the statistical rules. Love it. Yeah, I guess, is there is there advice uh, you'd want to give to parents thinking about these kinds of tests? I guess some, some tests, it seems like, are accurate and meaningful. Um, but it sounds like you're talking about a subset that are likely to give false positives. How do you know the difference? And then what do you do with the information? I, I think basically all these tests in some ways are very valuable, right? So in the sense that like if you tested positive on this, maybe now your risk that your fetus is affected by this is say one in 100. And previously it was like one in 10,000. So a huge amount of information has been provided 
Like the key is not to avoid information because we think we're going to react to it badly. It is to understand what is being provided by this. So if I think about the goal of expecting better, it's not so much to tell people like, don't think about this or, you know, everything is fine or like tell your doctor to F off or what, like that's none of that's the goal. It's really to say, if we have a better understanding of what's going on, of what these numbers mean, of what the data says, we can make better choices. We can process that information well. So I would tell people not, don't do these tests, Mm -hmm. but think about what you'll do with the information and make sure you understand what the information is actually going to tell you, not just, you know, what, not just taking it at face value without understanding it's what is actually there. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. Let's, let's move on to childbirth, which yeah, is a thing I'm very scared of. Uh, so the more information I can have on it, I think at least the more I'll feel in control. I'm not sure that that's actually going to be right, but okay, let's see what we can do. Okay. 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 Uh, maybe I'll be wrong and then this will just be bad for me, um, but maybe good for others. Uh, are there any really key decisions to make about your birth? Any decisions that really matter? There are many decisions that are made in childbirth. It's hard to think about the things that really matter in advance. You know, it's like a little bit of a complicated question because, of course, there are moments in the birthing process where it is possible that it's tremendously important whether they decide to do a C-section because that's actually what's going to save your baby. That's not something you can compare for in advance other than by having a provider that you trust. Mm -hmm. There are some things that I would tell people if they ask me, you know, how should I prepare for this? Like one thing I would say is get a doula. Hmm. So a doula is like a birth support person. There's a lot of evidence that having a doula makes people happier with their birth experiences, lowers the risk of C-section potentially by like half. Um, so really like this is the one, if I, you told me like, give me one piece of advice about my birth experience, it would be get a doula. Interesting. Okay. Are there any reasons not to get a doula? No. (laughs) I mean, not really like this isn't something where like there's a risk of this, you know, it's just a person. Right. Sure. You can always tell them to leave. And even for people who have planned a C-section, there actually, some people will say like, it's very valuable to have somebody that come afterwards. They kind of like you know, it's a sort of support space. So that's probably the the place where it's the least valuable is if you know you're planning, like I'm planning to go in on this date, I'm going to have a C-section, we're going to be here. That may be less valuable for almost anyone else, I would say, yes. Get a doula. Yes. Okay. Okay. So sounds like you very, very, very strongly recommend a doula. I have this association with doulas as being kind of hippie-ish. Um, and I also have this association with you of being super data-driven. Um, yeah, I guess, do you find any tension between being this very kind of data-driven person and the kinds of hippie-ish vibes that doulas seem to give off? So I am driven by data, and there's a lot of data <laughs> about doulas. Um, you know, I think you got to find a person who's a good who's a good fit. But I think the reality is that this, this profession, despite like the sort of associations that we all have in our heads, uh, has actually moved in a much less hippie to be way. And, and there's a, you know, like a lot of evidence that this works, even if you assign people random doulas when they arrive at the hospital. So it is a fair amount of, of data there. And it relates to a a question I think crosses a lot of both pregnancy and childbirth and, and child rearing, which is this sense of people wanting to be a type like you want to be like an evidence-based mom, you know, and like evidence-based moms don't have doulas. And I think it's really important that we not hew to those things and that we say, like, I could be a person who, you know, 
doesn't think breastfeeding is like, is going to try it, but isn't totally wedded to it. And also, but I could become one who co-sleeps, right? I could be a co-sleeping formula feeder. And, you know, that's like not a type we associate. Be like, well, you have to do all the attachment parenting. You want to breastfeed and wear the baby all the time. Because no, you can pick. It's your parenting. You don't have to be a kind of parent. Yes, yes. That really speaks to me. Um, and then just on the specifics of the evidence behind doulas, what kinds of outcomes is it? I think the main thing is C-sections. So this is like a pretty dramatic reduction in the risk of C-sections. And this is, I think, why this matters from a policy standpoint. So we actually see these impacts even if you sort of randomly assign the doula when the person arrives at the hospital, and even if you basically train their friend as a doula. So like, it's not, I mean, that's not as good as having somebody who's been around births before, but they're just the idea of like a support person Mm. being there is really important. It seems to reduce the C-section risk. It reduces the use of epidural actually. So there's a bunch of pieces of this. And it turns out, and this is something you've talked to policymakers about, it actually would be cost effective for Medicaid to pay about $1,300 for every doula, for everyone to have a doula, everyone on Medicaid, because that is the money saved from having a doula in terms of like C-sections are much more expensive, all this kind of stuff. So this is like a case in which it's like, there's just like free money on the table. Doula doesn't cost $1,300, right. like no, no chance. I mean, some places, but not most of the places. It's an example of something where I just don't understand why we're not doing it. And it's <laughs> right. gotta be the answer is the patriarchy, but I'm not sure what aspect of the patriarchy quite. Right, what the mechanism is. is. What's, the, what's the patriarchy mechanism there? I know that that's the answer. Got it. And then what exactly is the mechanism by which the doula is reducing those risks? Is it something like they're like you can do it. I'm going to coach you through X. I think it's hard to tell. So I think some of it is like, you know, coaching through changes in position. Some of it is kind of a general encouragement. There's like, there's some specific stuff around sort of moving around that might matter, but I'm not sure we have, like, I'm not sure there's something you could, you could sort of point to and say, it's this thing. Okay. Thank you for, for drilling into that with me. And I think my, my association with doulas is not, I'm sure it's very unfair. No, no. I mean, I think it's. I think it's a. It's an, a potentially appropriate historical association, but I think it. You know, turns out. Yeah, not the case now. I'm interested in the C-section question. A lot of people really want to have a vaginal birth, and yeah, maybe you can start by saying why is that so important to so many people. I don't know why it's so important to so many. <laughs> It's an interesting question. Um, I can, I think we can talk about why that would be sort of from a doctor standpoint, like that would be the outcome that they were, that they were hoping for. Um, and I think the answer there is that the, the recovery in the short term is on average much easier from a vaginal birth than from a C-section. So a vaginal birth, you know, the, it's not major surgery. I mean, you can have a very long recovery. So there's a range. Um, but a C-section is major abdominal surgery. It limits your mobility initially. There's a reason people spend four days rather than two days in the hospital. You know, it's it's kind of, you're guaranteed somewhat of a complicated recovery in a way that for vaginal birth, you may, you may get a very complicated recovery. But I drove us home from the hospital after my first kid. Like there's a range of of kind of ease of vaginal delivery that doesn't isn't there for C-sections. Interestingly, the outcome, the long-term outcomes for kids and and mom from those two are the same. There's really nothing in the data that would distinguish them. Hmm. Except if you want to have many more children, there are added complications in later pregnancies from a C-section and in particular from multiple C-sections. So if you said, my goal is to have five kids, 
it's actually really complicated to have five C-sections. Um, so that's a place where having a vaginal birth is going to make it possible to do this more because there are placental complications in later in later pregnancies uh, that become much more common if you've had C-section. So in some sense, like that choice and sort of that desire or that preference for vaginal birth, a lot of it is effectively rooted in like what's going to set you up better for future pregnancies. Interesting. Okay. I didn't know that. And that does feel really relevant to me. I have this really intense fear of vaginal birth. It just sounds like it's going to be so painful. My mom had a lot of vaginal tearing during her vaginal birth, and I'm just terrified. And part of me is like, hmm, a C-section. I've had a surgery before. Maybe maybe I can just do that and not have all that pain in the immediate uh, in the immediate kind of experience of it. Yeah. Well, one thing is that an epidural is pretty effective. Um, <laughs> so definitely you don't seem like a person who wants an unmedicated birth. <laughs> I don't. And I think that what you describe, the sort of fear of birth, I is quite real and is quite common and is not very widely discussed. Mm. So it's an interesting example of something where like you sort of the world kind of expects you to be like, what I'm really hoping is to give birth in the tub and to be pulling my own baby out when they're crowning and to be able to be like, are you kidding me? Do you know where it comes out of? Like, I want to be asleep. And then I want you to hand me my baby after you clean me up like the 1950s. Like, where is my twilight sleep option for this? Because it sounds terrible. And I think that's a very, that's a very common fear that we don't almost like don't allow enough of in in the world where you're supposed to talk about this as some kind of magical thing. I will say in the moment, like with many things, parenting, it, it kind of seems more normal than you have like some time to work up to it. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Can you say more about that? I'm I'm curious. I think it might help me to hear. I Because I do just, um, it's true that I don't feel like I've heard many people talk about the fear of it. I think I've heard heard loads of people talk about what the experience of being pregnant is like. I've heard lots of people talk about their childbirth kind of after the fact. And usually uh, by then there's a kind of magic about it. Oh, you've forgotten. Yes, totally. <laughs> exactly. Right. And I think with one exception, I haven't really heard anyone say I'm terrified about how painful and how long I'm going to be in pain for. I think part of the reason you don't hear that is because our pain relief options are really good. Okay. That's reassuring. So actually, like, I I think the, you know, for almost everybody, you ramp that epidural up, like, you're good. Like, I mean, not that it's not uncomfortable, there's pressure and so on, but this kind of intense, the the sort of pain of an unmedicated childbirth is like, you can turn a lot of that off. There's also a fair amount of adrenaline and forgetting, mm -hmm. you know, which I don't, it's like there's some self-preservation there. Sure. I don't know. I mean, I think it was pretty painful, but an interesting fact is that my husband was there when I, for both of our kids mm -hmm. when I had them and I, I had no epidural with either one. Wow. And the second one, I think we both agreed was like not that big a deal. <laughs> like it was very fast. Like we made it to the hospital. We had like, we got like 15 minutes from like arriving in the hospital to birth. And so it's like, we like waited a bit long. Um, second labors, faster than first labors, noted. But the the first one was like hours of push it. Like it was like awful. I remember it like it wasn't that bad. And my husband remembers it like, he was just like, I thought you were going to claw your face off. So you really do like, you sort of, you do forget. Um, and the pain relief is really good. Okay. 
All right. I find that extremely reassuring. Uh, on the other hand, I have this like deeply ingrained sense of it's bad to get an epidural. Oh, no, that's not true. Yeah. I don't know where it, and it's not it's not a belief about um, the facts. <laughs> it's like a, it's it's that kind of ingrained judgmenty thing. Uh, lots of people say they would prefer not to get an epidural and and you and you did it without. And and so maybe part of it is this like internal monologue where I'm like, I would like to be the kind of person that can endure pain and have a childbirth without pain relief. Why? Well, first, why not get an epidural? So there aren't a lot of uh, practical reasons not to do it. I mean, you look in the data, you know, there's the sort of pushing stage of labor is like on average a little bit longer if you've had an epidural than not. But, and there's a, like a little bit more medicalized, like you couldn't be in the tub if that was important to you. Right. But on the whole, like it's difficult to outline any real downsides. And there's this sort of very clear, obvious upside, which is pain relief. And I think it gets wrapped up in this idea of, I don't know, an opportunity to prove ourselves as like, I'm willing to suffer the most for my baby, which is something that comes up all the time, right? The idea that like somebody once mentioned there could be a bad thing about an epidural. So even though it's not really there in the data, like I wouldn't want to put my baby at any risk. And so I'm going to just like, I'm going to do it because this is my, and I think that's crazy and really like a very toxic approach to this. And if you have asked me, like, why didn't you have an epidural? The answer is the same reason that I'm trying to run a marathon. It's just like, I just want to see if I could do it. Like, but really, it's like, I thought like, ma, that seems like an interesting experience that like, I would like to see if I could, if I could do that. Right. Like trying to get to the end of the interval of the running, you know, like, can I keep this going for another mile of the tempo run? It's like that. Right. That's the whole thing. Why do people climb mountains? Why do people do crazy stuff? Why are these guys on Everest, you know, with the oxygen mass on their face when you know that a lot of people that I don't know, people are insane. And that's, and I think that's just like the answer. And like, I'm glad I did it for the same reason that, you know, I'm glad I finished the tempo run or what these guys are glad they got to Everest. But it isn't like, I'm glad I did it because now I know I'm a good mom. It's just like, wow, that was an interesting, like personal, personal challenge. Nice. Okay. That I achieved for stupid reasons. (laughs) Right. Uh, I like the sense of humor about it. Um, Also, it sounds like it had a real sense of accomplishment for you. And that is great. Yeah, that was good. But as someone who doesn't really expect to try to run a marathon as someone who doesn't value kind of intense pain for the sake of seeing if I can do it. That kind of person uh, shouldn't feel too much guilt or confusion. No guilt. You should feel no guilt about getting the epidural. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, one of my best friends had her baby like three months after me and she called me from the hospital the next day, having gotten her epidural and had her baby in it. And she basically, the first thing she said was you are an idiot. (laughs) You are just like, and I think that was a good, that was like, that was good. That was right. Right. Okay. Well, so for someone who decides they don't want an epidural, um, if they've made that call, what what options are available to them? Uh, is there data on non-medical pain relief uh, for childbirth? Yeah, most of that doesn't work too good. Um, you know, there are some ways to prepare. And this is a place, like, if you wanted to have a non-medicated childbirth, you must get a doula. It is a, a totally non-negotiable opportunity. Like just, I just think that is the situation in which that's going to be the most valuable. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff people talk about acupuncture, you know, weird smells, you know, hypnosis, like 
maybe some breathing exercises kind of help, but at the end of the day, like there's really not much. There are some pain relief options that are sometimes, they're more common in in Europe, but um, there's like nitrous oxide is a pain relief option that is sometimes available that's like a little bit of an intermediate in the sense that it's kind of, it's like you breathe in um, during a contraction. So it sort of lowers the intensity, but it leaves immediately. And so it's not a kind of long-term, it's not a long-term thing, but that's something that sometimes people will sort of think of as an intermediate. Yeah. What did you do? Nothing. How did you manage your pain? Oh. Uh, just experienced it. Yeah, I, I don't know. There was some visualization involving a hill. Huh. Can you say more about that? I mean, this was a long time. It's like, I don't know. I think I had some idea that I would visualize like hiking up this hill that we had like right. sometimes hiked up in the past. But eventually like, whatever. We didn't have to get into this. Like, I mean, by the end, I was like falling asleep between contractions. I would like have a contraction. I would fall asleep for a minute. Then I would have another, like, you know, it, it like at the end is pretty intense. That's why it's better the second time when basically you just like slipped out. I spent most of the, yes, I spent most of the time like trying to get into the hospital. And then like pretty much as soon as we got into the room, I was like, oh, he's coming out now. Okay. There you go. That's what I recommend. Have your baby really fast. Okay. So I guess I did hear that recovery prospects uh, were faster and C-section rates were lower with no epidural. Is that true? I think those effects, if they are there, are very, very small. You know, again, there's a sort of limiting nature of this, which is like it takes the epidural a little bit of time to wear off. You typically need a catheter. So there are some of these things where like if your goal was to like 15 minutes after you gave birth to like get up and walk around, that is probably only going to be possible if you had a non-medicated vaginal birth. It is not clear why that would be a goal of interest to most people. Okay. Let's say someone doesn't have this kind of desire to feel the pain for the pain's sake to see if they can handle it. Um, What is kind of the best possible argument uh, you could give for why someone should avoid an epidural? So if they, and again, you've pushed in a particular direction, so I'll tell you, I guess, the one thing although I really don't think this should move many people's decisions. But if the person who puts in the epidural does it wrong and you get what's called a wet tap where they basically hit the wrong part of the spine, you can end up with a really bad, like a really terrible headache like two days later. Hmm. So that's like, and that's, you know, most of the time they do the epidural, right? Sometimes people get a wet tap, it can happen. Uh, And that would be a, a downside. Okay. So it sounds like based on your read of the evidence... If someone is not interested in feeling a bunch of pain for the pain's sake, um, there are some downsides to having an epidural, like needing a catheter and the potential risk of this complication that doesn't happen to most people, but that could happen. Uh, But for the most part, recovery and C-section being more likely is not is not a big effect. Yeah, I guess last question on childbirth. During childbirth, when doctors are presenting you with a new recommendation um, or paths you could take, uh, are there key questions you should be asking? This is very hard. Um, so most of the time when there are choices to be made during childbirth, they are things that you probably want in the hands of your doctor. So I think rather than thinking that you're going to be in a position or your partner is going to be in a position to litigate uh, in, a, in the moment, you want those conversations to happen at the beginning. Like how much time are we planning to wait? If you have a labor induction, Mm. you typically want to be pretty patient. Talking to your doctor about like 
is there a point at which you will decide labor is too slow and you will automatically go to a C-section? What is that point? You know, having those conversations in advance, I think, is good. In the moment, if a doctor says, you know, labor is stalled out, like we're worried about the baby's heart rate, you need a C-section, very few people are going to be like, let's go to the evidence on that. So I think those conversations really have to happen in advance. Yeah. Okay. And what are the... I don't know, if there were three topics to talk about with your doctor in advance, uh, what are the top three you'd want to make sure you had discussed before? Yeah, so I think one is just talking about the the speed of labor expectations. So this is something that's updated over time. There was sort of this idea for a long time that you should dilate one centimeter an hour and that if you went slower than that, it was meant that the labor was was stalled. I think it turns out way less predictable and quite a bit slower than that for most uh, people, particularly in first births. So just aligning on, you know, how are we going to think about stalled labor and where are you on that? That's kind of one thing. I would talk about episiotomies. So episiotomy is like, if you're worried the baby's not coming out, you cut. That's generally not recommended. It's not that there's no situations in which that would ever be appropriate, but on the whole, that's really not something that should happen routinely. I think it's an example of something I just check in with my, with my doctor about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think it is useful to have a level setting conversation about what you are expecting, about where you are in the range on sort of how are you thinking about a C-section versus a vaginal birth? You know, how do you feel about pain relief? Um, Just making sure that they know what you're coming into this with is valuable. Makes sense. Okay, let's move to your book, Crib Sheet, um, which starts with kind of the first year and goes through toddlerhood. Yeah, for a soon-to-be parent, how many absolute must-know things are there to make sure that a baby survives and is kind of baseline happy? So there are very few individual choices that have this impact. So if I had to pull out two, I would say putting your baby to sleep on their back. We have a lot of evidence that that is uh, important and that that reduces the risk of SIDS by quite a lot and introducing allergens early in life, which reduces the risk of allergies. That second one is small in the sense that it's not hard to do, uh, but the impacts are really big. Most of the other, like these choices that people spend so much time obsessing about, am I going to sleep train and am I going to breastfeed and you know, when am I going to potty train or whatever it is, they're just not really that important. I think it's worth saying, though, that the first three years of life or the first year, like they're really important for kids. But the things that are really important are having some kind of stable caregiving environment, whether it's your parents or a stable daycare provider, like whatever it is, some kind of stable environment, a safe place to sleep, enough food to eat, healthcare, protection from toxic stress. So no abuse, but also, you know, protection from the kind of like instability that is rife in the world, those things are really, really, really important. And they are not accessible to all people in the U.S. or globally. But I think a lot of times these conversations get wrapped up in kind of like everyone's assuming, like, of course, those things. Right. And then, like, let's obsess about this thing. It's like, that thing doesn't matter. Like, you already have all the things. All You already hit all the things. And then anything else you're talking about is just kind of small potatoes. Got it. Okay. Um, So yeah, just to make sure I understood everything. 
Babies should sleep on their back. Um, I actually found the evidence for that one pretty interesting because if I remember correctly, the reason we know that is because there was a period during which uh, it was recommended that babies sleep on their front. And then there was a period where the advice changed. And when you compare those two periods, um, infants dying suddenly was much higher when babies were sleeping on their front, which is really horrible and tragic, um, but very clear cut. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's actually some fairly clear-cut mechanistic reasons why that would happen. So that basically, I think, are some sense of, like, at least a fair amount of what happens in SIDS is babies just, like, the sort of automatic breathing response mm. that we have as people just stops. And that is more likely to happen if they're very deeply asleep and babies sleep better on their stomachs than on their backs. And so when you have them sleeping on their back, they sleep slightly less deeply, but this response then is is less common. Okay, got it. And the other is this allergy thing. And and we know that because it's something like some countries do introduce allergens a lot to young kids and then they have fewer allergies. So we know that because th that's the hypothesis generation paper. So there's an early paper that basically compared kids in Israel to kids in Britain and showed that kids in Israel have much lower incidence of peanut allergies and they have a common baby snack called bomba, which is peanuts peanut-based. Um, and so that was the idea. And then actually the people who sort of had that hypothesis initially ran a randomized control trial where they randomly assigned some kids to be exposed to allergens early and some kids not. And there's like a 70% difference in the allergy development across groups. So the effect is really, really big. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. But broadly, your message here uh, is something like the basics, like stability and kind of getting basic needs met is the thing that really matters. And a bunch of the questions I'm about to ask you, like breastfeeding and swaddling, yeah. uh, are not that important to baby outcomes. And maybe it sounds like more important to just like what the experience is like for the parent, which is just... Yeah, I think something that your books really drove home for me um, and the reason so much of what I took away from it is like the question is a personal preference, personal choice question. It's like, what is going to work best for you as a as a family unit? Unless like, are you going to ruin your baby's life uh, if they like have to cry themselves to sleep? Exactly. Um, okay, well, just to drive that point home, um, and maybe we can go through some of these quickly, given that I've already given a bit of spoiler, but um, how important is it to breastfeed? There are some small early life benefits to breastfeeding, lower risk of gastrointestinal illnesses. It's pretty important uh, if your baby's in the NICU. And that's about it. Most of the long-term, effectively, I think all of the long-term stuff that people cite about the kids, like they'll be smarter, they'll be thinner, there's like long-term health benefits. It just does not show up in good data on this. And so this phrasing you hear a lot, which is like breast is best. It's like in some sense, that's true. But when people say that, they're not usually thinking like a 3% reduction in the risk of, uh, of eczema. You know, they're thinking like something bigger. So I think it's an example of a place where like, I guess breast is best is, is right, but also probably overstates how much the best is. Right. It's this point you made about one question is, is there a difference? The Another question is, what's the magnitude of the difference? And in this case, uh, we're not talking about reducing a baby's IQ by 40 points. We're not. How about sleep training? It feels like one of the kind of 
mommy war topics I've heard the most about is uh, cry it out method, uh, where you let your baby cry themselves to sleep, and maybe that causes attachment disorders for the rest of their lives. What do we know about that? So, uh, so this is one of the most effective ways to get babies to sleep on their own. And I should be clear, not everybody wants their baby to sleep on their own. Like, you know, there's some, a bunch of discussion about co-sleeping in the book. And I think for some people, the sort of like co-sleeping with your kid forever is like what they want or for some period of time. But there are a lot of people who would like their kids to sleep uh, through the night in their own rooms. And an effective way to improve the amount of sleep that kids get is to do a kind of cry it out where you leave the kids and there's a checking version and not checking version. They all kind of involve the same thing. And the basic idea is that over some quite short period of time, kids learn to self, basically self-soothe and then they can fall asleep on their own and they tend to sleep better. And parents also sleep better. And the concern people often raise is like, is this causing kids to lose their attachment or have some long-term impacts? And that is not there in the data. So there's randomized trials where they randomized families into doing this or not, and they follow the kids and they see them later and just don't see any differences across the kids when they're older hmm. at all in attachment or, or anything else. I think it's worth saying that many of these randomized trials are run effectively with the interest in the outcome of the parent's well-being. So they're looking, they're not trials to see whether this damages children. These are trials to see, like, can we improve postpartum depression? Yes. Can you, like, improve marital satisfaction? Yes. Like, basically, can parents be made happier as a result of sleeping more? Because we know that depriving people of sleep is a form of torture, an actual form of torture that people use. And so when parents are not functioning, they are potentially not good parents. So I think it's it's kind of, we talk about sleep training sometimes as if there's no other side. Like, this is just a selfish thing that, like, oh, why did you have kids if you didn't want to be up all night? It's like, well, actually parent functioning is part of being a good parent. And so we sort of miss that, kind of miss that piece. Yeah. Um, I guess to the extent that different people will end up making different decisions on this, what do end up being the considerations you think are important for them? So I think some of it has to do with sort of thinking about what's the structure of like what's the structure of your of your family life that you want to have, right? So there's a version of this, which is like, I want my kids in bed at seven and I'm like, you know, out of the room and they're by themselves and like, I'm doing something like, like maybe you want that. And then there's a version which is like, we all sort of want to like, we want to co-sleep, we want to kind of be together. I'm not interested in my kid being in their own room. I don't want to like ha- have that. And I think those are both completely reasonable, totally valid reasonable family structures, but they're pretty different. So I think that's sometimes what I tell people is like, just think about which space you want to be in. And if you want your kid to go to sleep by themselves at seven o'clock in their room alone, some kids that will work without any kind of sleep training. Often, if you want to get there, you are going to need to have some kind of sleep hygiene system. Got it. Okay. So there's this kind of decision-making process that you want to go through that really is looking at your values and uh, what kind of family lifestyle you want to build. Exactly. And then probably some experimentation to be like, can I actually tolerate uh, hearing my baby cry? Or if not, does that mean this isn't doable for me? Or do I want to find some way to block out the sound of my baby cry? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, and I think some of this is also kind of to what extent can you like help yourself understand that this is not damaging and that it is that there is a reason to, to do it. You know, sleep is important for kids too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Another one 
that I don't think is quite as controversial uh, is is swaddling. Yeah. Any evidence about swaddling one way or the other? Swaddling's good. So swaddling, you like wrap your kid up like a burrito. Um, and early on, it's like more, it's like sort of like an infancy related thing, but it does tend to improve their sleep for like, let them sleep for longer periods. And this is a case where there's some like fun evidence where they sort of have babies in these like videos and like put these sensors on them. And so you can see like why it's working. And basically the answer is like when babies sort of start to wake up, the swaddle kind of keeps them from waking all the way up. So they have kind of like a, like a reflex and the swaddle kind of like dampens dampens down the reflex, keeps them tucked in. uh, And then they go back, they're more likely to sort of connect sleep cycles and go back to sleep rather than kind of having the reflex, the sort of startle turn into a this and turn into a yelling. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So there are just tons of strong pieces of advice uh, in the space. Is there an official recommendation for parents of infants that you disagree with most? So less kind of a myth, but like a, an actual recommendation kind of in guidelines somewhere. I mean, I think we push people too hard on breastfeeding. You know, I think that the kind of the high pressure breast is best narrative is not really serving people well. So I would prefer that we would maybe say some more realistic stuff about that. Yeah. And help people achieve breastfeeding rather than just assuming that like if we make them feel enough shame, that that will somehow effectively help them breastfeed, which there's no evidence for that. Right. I guess thinking about this really practically, um, and again, I'm not a parent yet, but I am a perfectionist and I can, again, have, I have this puppy and I really want them uh, to have a flourishing life. And I'm already noticing that like, I'm, I'm holding myself to extremely high standards uh, for like whether I'm doing all the right things. And I wonder if even if we kind of undercut some of these myths or things that are a bit overblown, even if I believe that intellectually, I might not believe it deeply emotionally enough that I can feel okay about not breastfeeding. It's, it seems like from your reaction that this is kind of common. Yeah. How, how can a mom handle that? Or a parent? (laughs) I think it is. I mean, I think it is. And I think part of it is, you know, for many people, you're putting a lot of the pressure. People are putting a lot of the pressure on themselves. I think it is therefore perhaps especially bad if we also put a lot of pressure on them in societal ways. So it's already like easy to feel like you're failing. And if we then tell you you're failing, that's pretty problematic. So I don't disagree in the sense I think much of the, often it's the case that that we like almost are judging ourselves before other people are judging us. And it is also true that there is a lot of pressure and judgment from the outside. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess I'm curious if you have any advice for people who find themselves being like, breastfeeding is proving extremely difficult for me for various reasons. I think I need to introduce formula I feel horrible about this um, because this has all been ingrained in me that this is super important. And intellectually, I know that it's probably fine, but I feel like I want to give them the best possible start and then I'm going to fail to do that. Um, If you ever had this, was there anything that helped you feel less like a failure? No. I mean, this was (laughs) awful. So I like, I, I feel for the people who tell me that because I like, I am that person, you know, (laughs) I like my daughter didn't my first kid, she just like didn't really like breastfeeding. You know, it was like wasn't for her. You know, she liked, 
It took a long time for my milk to come in. She just preferred the bottle. She liked to eat a lot. You know, she always likes to eat, eat a lot. And then she just like didn't like one of my boobs. It's the only reason, the only way that she would nurse on the left is if I was walking up and down and also bouncing her at the same time, which is like really hard to do when you're trying to like get the boob in the mouth and you're bouncing and you're walking. It was like terrible. And when I look back on that time now, I just like, I can't believe how much I thought this was important. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, at, like I, I feel so bad for my former self. Yeah. And I wish I could just go back and be like, listen, your kid is 12. Like, there's more hard stuff coming. Like, you got, there's like shit down the road. You were like, this isn't that important. You know, this is like, just let it go. Yep. But it's very hard when you're in it to, to give yourself that grace. Um, and this is why sometimes, you know, people's partners will write. And I and will say like, you know, I, or people write to me, they say like, I read your chapter and like, I read it and read it and read it like about breastfeeding. And like, I read it over and over again to like, whenever I felt like I was like, like doubting myself basically, like just convincing myself. And I think that those are the messages that are like the most meaningful for me, because if I can pull somebody else out of that and be like, don't walk up and down your hall with your baby, just sit in a chair Give them a bottle of formula, which, like, frankly, is would be much nicer for them too. Nobody <laughs> likes to be bounced up and down and have the boobs stuck in their mouth when they're not interested in it. Like, that's not fun. Yeah, nobody was enjoying that. No additional IQ points were gained. Nobody was having a good time. No points were gained. Nothing was gained. Nothing was gained. Yeah, um, I'm just now musing on what might help me, and I wonder if before having the baby, uh, I'll do a lot of. Under which conditions am I going to be totally, am I going to try to kind of accept the fact that I might not breastfeed and, and kind of almost expose myself to that decision in advance? In the 1980s, the, there was a Dr. Spock. This was like 1970s and 1980s had Dr. Spock. And Dr. Spock writes about breastfeeding and he's like writing about it at a time when it was sort of coming back, right? So breastfeeding kind of hit its like nadir in like the early 1970s. And then like during the 1970s, it kind of starts coming back. So we're sort of in a space where people are thinking about it very differently than they do now. And he has this thing that says like, you know, you might try breastfeeding because you might like it. And some people do. And I always think about that because it's sort of like, it wasn't like you have to do it. It was just like, hey, some people enjoy this. And that's true. Like with my second kid, like this was great. It worked great. It was super convenient. He totally liked it fine. I had plenty of milk, like everything. It was like, it was super convenient. It like worked really well. And I was glad I did it. And if I framed it like that, I would have said like, yeah, I try it again. Like you might like, oh, I did like it. That's great. Whereas the first time, if I had thought like, try it, you might like it. I don't like it. It's bad. <laughs> I yep. wish I wasn't doing this. Right. Yeah. Another one from my colleague, Kieran. What's the biggest common mistake made by new fathers specifically? Hmm. I think it's pretty hard to be a new dad, actually, because I think it's it's like there's there's less that you can do than you you would like to. And you know, I think the more that both parents can spend alone time with the kid um, that is unscaffolded by the other person, the better. So I think like taking five hours by yourself. Um, and of course, that's hard if people are exclusively breastfeeding, but like the sort of more responsibility people can take early on, the less you get into this range of like only mom can do everything and dad like isn't able to do stuff. Um, and so I think just finding finding time if you can to like not just be there as the second person, but be there as the first person, that's pretty important. Nice. Yeah. Any kind of concrete suggestions for how to how to do that? Just plan it in advance. 
almost every answer to like, how do I do something that I want to do in the first, you know, two weeks of my kid's life is just like schedule it out in advance, you know, plan, plan to have a family meeting two weeks in where you like talk about like, how are things going? Like you will not do any of those things if you haven't thought about them before the baby comes. Cause it's just going to be like a, like a tremendous, like a totally overwhelming tsunami. But if you've kind of like put in place, okay, when we, for the first day we get home, like here's kind of a sense of when different people might be in charge, or at least have said in advance, one of the priorities in the first four days is to make sure that like dad gets, you know, several hours of, a, of time in which they're in charge of the baby. Like, I think that's going pretty far in the direction of making it happen. Nice. It's like planning to vote or something, right? Like, tell me your voting plan. Right, right. Yes, that makes total sense to me. So moving on to another topic, 80,000 Hours uh, typically aims to help people do good with their career. And a lot of our listeners take very seriously the idea that kind of doing good with their career should be a major priority in their lives, um, including myself. So I'm interested in how big of a hit uh, a person's career takes when they have children. And I imagine this differs loads by gender and probably by where you live. Um, So maybe we can talk about those things separately. But I guess starting with women, how does having children uh, affect women's careers on average? So negatively on the whole. I mean, you know, again, I think here it's really important to distinguish between kind of what socioeconomic group we're talking about. Um, and having children has negative impacts on earning potential across the, the sort of wide range. The place I think we understand it best in some sense is in women who are have advanced degrees, have college degrees, where there's a kind of co- sort of career path aspect. Um, and I think the issue is that when you have kids, we see the earnings for women sort of tail off relative to men. So if you look at a graph of kind of like earnings over time, they're sort of moving, tracking together. If this were a video, you could see that I'm moving my hands together, <laughs> uh, that they're tracking together and then they and then they start to diverge around the around the time of the first kid. And, and that's for a bunch of different reasons. Um, I think the the best, in some ways, the, the best sort of explanation work on this comes out of Claudia Golden, who just got a Nobel Prize. Um, and she's written her most recent book. She talks about the idea of greedy work and the idea that a lot of sort of high income, high status jobs really require, they will always take more hours. And I think that that it becomes very difficult for both people to be investing in that way in a partnership and when one person has to choose to step back, it's more likely to be the woman for a bunch of different reasons. So we kind of end up in a situation in which there's a distinction, there's a difference between men and women in wages. Actually, men tend to kind of do do better after having kids than before. Wow. Okay. I have a bunch of questions about that. Just because it's the last thing you said, and it took me by surprise, do we have any idea why men earn more after having kids? I'm not sure we have a great sense. This isn't, to be fair, a space that I do research in. Um, My casual sense from reviewing some of this research is it's probably some combination of their partner is stepping back, and so they are stepping out, and the incentives are greater because you have somebody to support. Yes, right. That makes sense. Um, I can see that being true. Um, Okay, so then... Are women's wages kind of relatively less than men's, even holding constant the fact that women might work less? Or is it a mix of things, including something like women work less? So one thing I think it's you have to understand is that most jobs are not 
divisible in an hourly manner, right? So like if you thought about all jobs as being piecework, basically, however, you know, you work for this number of hours and like you complete this number of units and then you get some money, then it would be the case that if you work 20 hours a week that you make half as much as you work 40 hours a week. Mm-hmm. Most or many professional jobs like lawyer, accountant, investment banker, doctor, professor, whatever, most of those jobs have the feature that if you work for 20 hours, you don't make half what you do when you work for 40 hours. So there is a com- it's a little difficult to think about the question of like, is it that there people are working fewer hours? Well, is it they're working fewer hours? But it's also that moving from 40 to 20 isn't half. It's, you know, much less than than half. Um, and there are some within this space, there are jobs that are more divisible and jobs that are less divisible. But that basic idea that there just isn't a sense in which you can adjust on the on the intensive margin in quite the way that you might hope, that's a big part of the story. Yeah, okay, that that makes sense. How big is the effect on on wages? I can tell you, interestingly, the fact I know the best is about retirement savings. So there's about 30% gap in retirement savings, uh, which is, of course, accumulated number over a long um, over a long period. I mean, you see these numbers like, you know, women get paid, you know, 77 cents on the dollar, 85 cents on the dollar relative to men. That's conflating a lot of different things. That's not just about, um, that's not just about differences in hours, not just about differences in, in jobs. So I think that answer, that question doesn't have a very direct answer. Do we know things about the effects besides wages? And I guess I'm curious about like seniority. Like are are women kind of getting less senior roles or are they being Yeah, I mean I think in a sense like that's a huge share of the wage gap, right? So if you sort of think about and I think that's a that's a very tricky thing to think about when we talk about a wage gap, you sort of have in your mind, well, like two people with the same job and one of them gets paid less. So the straight up kind of discrimination story. And that happens some. Um probably a much bigger part, and again, these things are hard to separate in the data, but on it's likely that a much larger part of what we see as a gender wage gap is basically a gender seniority gap. So I'll give you a very concrete example. In academia, a bunch of research universities in the last year or so have tried to figure out like what a gendered male and female professor wages look like. And when you do that, you find that women get paid less. A hundred percent of that is about differences in rank and the fact that women are less likely to be full professors or they have been full professors for less time. It's much more strongly true in the older generation where basically women were promoted more slowly or whatever. And you could say, well, some of that in the past was about discrimination. It's a very reasonable view. But the reality is that all of the gap is explained by things you can see about seniority. Right. And so I think that's true in a lot of these spaces, right? You're a, you're an associate at a law firm. You take some time off. It takes longer to get to partner. You know, so even if you are a partner, you haven't been a partner for as long, or you've been a you've kind of been promoted in a different in a different way. There's this idea of the mommy track. There are a lot of a lot of reasons why wages are different. Probably most of which are about differences in things you could see. And again, I want to emphasize that doesn't mean they're not discrimination. It's just if you want to look for a discrimination explanation for that, you need to sort of go back to to kind of why this happened in the first place. Does the difference widen over time? Does it shrink over time? Does it stay the same? It widens. It widens. It widens. Really. I mean, it, wi- it sort of widens the most and then it sort of uh, kind of like 
stays about the same. I mean, again, like if you look at the time path of people's wages, eventually they they stagnate um, or growth stops. And at that point, there's not as much space for widening. And yeah, I guess the story about ours makes sense to me about how much harder it is to um, to go halftime, but still pursue kind of the same levels of seniority. Are there other things going on? Like, is some of it just choice? Are some women choosing to take on less responsibility because uh, they would prefer to trade off a more senior role for more time with their kids? Totally. I mean, and I think that's, there's like, yes, some people choose. I mean, it's and, and it's an interesting policy question because when we say, you know, we want to have more women with kids in the workforce, which is something that gets expressed a lot. I think we want to think about, there might be two reasons you might leave the workforce when you have kids. One is that you might not want to be in the workforce anymore. And like, that's a completely reasonable, appropriate preference that some people have. And we wouldn't want to say like, let's force everyone to work if they would prefer to work at home by taking care of their kids, which is also, by the way, a job that's quite hard. (laughs) Then there's a second piece, which is people who basically would want to maintain a foot in the workforce or would prefer and that to work, but are kind of something else is keeping them out of the workforce. And I I would put in that category the recognition that some people would like to work less for not four months, but like several years, right? And I think one one of the biggest challenges, I think, when we think about sort of further developing, you know, women's role and leadership positions in the workforce is to recognize that there may be periods in which people want to be less engaged and it would be a shame to lose that human capital for that period. And so I think thinking about, you know, we know from the data that women prefer, like women put more value on flexible work arrangements if they have small children. There was a recent Brookings report that showed the labor force participation rate for women, like college educated women with children under five is the highest it has ever been post pandemic. And that is because those people are able to work remotely. And the value of being able to work remotely when you have little kids is really high. And so thinking about, you know, well, some of those people we really want to keep in the workforce and being able to keep them. And then, you know, eventually your kid's going to middle school and they don't care about you anymore. And, you know, <laughs> you have time to work more. So I really, you know, I, I talk a lot about this and I think it's really important to, to sort of think about how we can provide the kinds of flexibility that people need in the, in the short term. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually curious if you have other specific policies, either at the organizational level or at a higher level uh, that make a difference here. I mean, I think any kind of requirement for FaceTime is pretty tough uh, for parents. Um, You know, if you think about the lifestyle that you have with a little kid, they go to bed at like 730. And so the hours between like 530 and 730 are really valuable because that's like they're home from daycare you have dinner, you put them to bed. It's not that those hours are always so great. Um, that's usually when your kid is the biggest jerk, but like that's your time to see your kid. You know, that's your time. And so a job that requires you to be there till 6.30 is much worse than a job that lets you go at five and asks you to be back on for an hour at eight. And I think just like recognizing the value of moving time and being able to say, you know, we're gonna let you prioritize this is something we're missing that at least some employers, I think, miss. Totally. Yep, yep, that seems huge. Um, Does anything else come to mind? 
I mean, I think there's, there are almost every idea I have involves flexibility. So also your kid is sick. And so like sort of thinking about like what's valuable about the possibility of remote work, even if remote work is not, uh, is not your, your norm, the idea that you could work remotely. So when your kids were sick, you had, you know, you could like, we know that kids get sick all the time and that's just part of like having a kid. Yeah. And just the more we can recognize the things that people need to combine the parenting they want to do with the work that they want to do, the better. Yeah. Does delaying childbirth reduce the negative impacts on one's career at all? Like, are, I guess, are the wage or other career impacts of having kids, do they vary? They happen when you have the kid. I see. Okay. You know, partly it's a little tricky to answer that because, again, a lot of the data we have from this is about, you know, women who are kind of like having kids a bit later who are kind of in these professional jobs. And I think it's an interesting question of like, would it be better to have your kid when you're 20? And then, you know, you'd be like, They'd be old by the time you were trying to lean in. I, we just don't have the, this just, this is not the way it works. Okay. I guess though, if it happens whenever you have a kid, it could be the case that by delaying, you kind of progress further in your career um, before you start taking this hit. And maybe that overall reduces the impact. Could be. Yeah. Could be. Could be. Could be. I don't know. I mean, I think it's like, I think it's just hard to tell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, so what's your advice to someone who wants to have kids or who already has kids um, who wants to stay on a kind of productive and ambitious career trajectory? Get help. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. like, I mean, I think it's it's both useful to recognize that your kids will take time um, and be deliberate about thinking about how you're going to combine those things. Um, I think it's useful to recognize that there are only 24 hours in a day And you are not going to be able to be a stay-at-home mom and also a full-time working mom because those are both full-time jobs. And I think sometimes people come in with expectations which diverge from the possibilities of reality. And I think that's that's when there's more chaos. So just recognizing some of the limitations up front. Yeah. Yeah. That does sound like something I need to hear. I very much, I think I'm in the camp of like, somehow I'm going to be a very present and available parent while also uh, working the exact same amount and having the same ambitious career. I mean, it's, it's even sort of, and again, I don't want to imply to people that they can't because I think in some ways, like I absolutely think you can. I just think sometimes we have an, in our mind, a way that of being present that's ridiculous. So I'll give you like my most specific example, which is like when I was a kid, Mikey Bright's mom made, Mikey Bright was in my elementary school. She made these cupcakes for bake sales. And the way she made, they were like chocolate cupcakes and she would like dig out the sort of top of the cupcake and put in whipped cream and then put the top back on. And like, man. Wow. Grace Bright, if you were listening to this, I remember those cupcakes so well. And like my mom was always like, sign up for plates. Like make sure you can sign up for like plates or soda. Like forget it. And if you have to do something, box brownies. But like really, you got to <laughs> get the sheet first so you can get the plates. Yep. And I remember being like, when I have kids, like I'm going to be the mom who makes the cupcakes. Mm-hmm. And then I had kids and I was like, sign up for the plates because you can't <laughs> actually be the Like you can't. Like that wasn't. And that's no shade on on like Bright's mom. It's no shade on my mom. It's just like, you know, you don't have... There isn't time in the day to be, you know, hand making cup for most of us to be like both hand making cupcakes and also working a working a full time job. Figuring out what are the things you need to sh- that you feel you need to show up for, mm-hmm. and that are the ways that 
that are going to serve why you became a parent and what you want to be showing up for for your kids. I think that's, that's the most important thing. The other thing I will say is people spend so much time thinking about the first two years. Hmm. Like before you, and of course, like that's what's in your mind, right? Before you have a kid, it's like, okay, and I'm going to need to be there for breastfeeding. I'm going to need to be there this and this and this. And like, yeah, okay, those things are important, are important. If you talk to people with older kids, like one of the things they'll often say is like, I was really substitutable when my kids were babies. Like, yeah, I provided breast milk, but like fundamentally, like they were happy to sleep. Like there were many, many people who could serve the needs of my kids when they were babies. There are many fewer people who can serve the needs of my kids now. And like, as your kids get older, I think for many of us, the stakes feel a little higher and the value of being there feels almost greater than it did. And I think that's both important to recognize because you don't want to conceive it as like, there's going to be two years of investment and then like basically they'll be, I'll be done. Like they're going to like some English boarding school, you know, like it's like the need for you is not going to disappear. But also in those first years, there's a lot of people who are substitutable. Interesting. Yeah. I, I feel like I am again, one of the people who needed to hear that. I think I have some like, yeah, I've got to prepare for the sprint of the first two years and then somehow it gets easier, but it is a marathon. It's a marathon. Mm. And the first two years, like those are kind of like, you're kind of slow, you know, you're not picking up the pace. It's like the, I'm in the middle of training for a marathon. So I really have a lot of uh, this in my head now. It's right. like, those are the, those, you keep it controlled. Keep it <laughs> controlled those first couple miles because, you know, it's getting, getting hard in the last 10K. It's hard. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, that is frightening to me. <laughs> um, that makes this feel a bit harder to prepare for, especially because I think Yeah, preparing for a sprint sounds easier to me than preparing for how to have a productive career while raising kids when it's actually a marathon. Yeah, going back to the thing that you said, which is like, probably we need to think about what our values are and the ways we want to show up for our kids uh, and then let the rest go if we're in the position of wanting to have um, some significant part of our lives uh, be spent on our careers. And yeah, I guess guilt has already come up, but um, it feels really likely to me that I'm going to be like on board with like, okay, there's like, it's just not that important to like fill my kids cupcakes with whipped cream. Like if I had the time and that is the thing I want to do most in the world, that would be great. Um, but I don't, and it isn't. And, uh, so I'm not going to do it. I still think I'm going to feel like an inadequate parent. Um, if I don't do that kind of thing, to what extent have you had that? And does anything help? Oh, no, everybody feels inadequate. That's part of parenting, right? You never think you're... I mean, it's hard. It's really hard to feel like you're doing a good job, which is part of why I spend so much time on the internet telling people that they're doing a good job because they mostly are. Um, But it is not a feeling one has... Like, there was a recent time when I did think I did a good job. And it was so notable that I, like, wrote to my husband. I was like, I did a good job this morning. It's like, you don't just don't... Like, it's, it's like... teaching evaluations or something. You just like hang on to the mistakes and the people and the good parts are like easy to to forget. So Uh that is to say, some fraction of the time you will feel like you're doing a a poor job. And I would make a distinction between the feeling of sometimes thinking, boy, like I would have managed that situation differently, which is unavoidable, Mm -hmm. and the feeling of I'm doing my life wrong. Like this isn't the life I wanted. And that's where, you know, I talk about this a lot in the family firm, but I think 
both at various times, before you have the kid, after you have the kid, like it's useful to sit down and think about what do I want the shape of this to look like? You know, what time do I want to be spending? Which hours? How do I want the weekends to look? Things that are going to shape the way your day-to-day goes and the time you spend with your kids and what you're doing in that time with your kids. And all of those things, you have an opportunity to deliberately plan them. And you can then feel like, I've thought about this and this is a life that I want. This is a life that we're trying to craft for our family, for our kids. That is distinct from thinking you're you're doing a good job in every moment, which you can't achieve, but you can achieve like, I'm doing this the way that I think works for my family. Right, right. Yeah. And I I can imagine it being maybe not like totally 100% comforting, but at least somewhat comforting when you're like feeling a bit of guilt about not making the cupcakes being like... This was the plan. I never planned to make the cupcakes. I didn't plan to make the cupcakes. Like it's, and yeah, you're never going to avoid the feeling like when you see the other family with the cupcakes, you're never going to be like, well, those cupcakes suck. You're going to be like, well, it's like a good cupcake. There's the whipped cream in the middle and everything, you know, but you can think like, I know I made a plan, which was not involved making the cupcakes. Let me tell you a follow up to that story, Great. which is that our current babysitter, our current nanny is trained as a professional chef. And, uh, her last job was chocolate modeler at a bakery. This is like a totally random, like the luckiest thing. She's like, we found her during the pandemic. She's like the most wonderful person. She's the only reason I'm able to do anything. (laughs) And at the last bake sale, which was animal shelter themed, she made cupcakes, each of which was decorated with a different animal on it. Stop. And now, and then you find, you can be the parent (laughs) with the (laughs) cupcakes, but you have to give the credit to somebody else. So thank you, Claire, for those amazing dog cupcakes, which were extraordinary. Right. And then we're back to get help. Then we're back to get help. And then we're back to, and I think that it's, and I think it's both very important to recognize the need to get help and very important to recognize, like to say, you know, for someone, I think sometimes, sometimes people ask me things like, well, how do you, like, how do you balance the career? How do you do the thing? You know, how do you have this job? And and also have your kid. The answer is like, I have a lot of help. I have a lot of help at work. I have a lot of help at home. Um, and my kids are big. Those are kind of the answers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you a tiny bit more about that anyways, even if that is the key answer. Yeah. Um, and, and I also want to come back to um, come back to childcare and uh, get more concrete with how how hard is it actually to get all that help. But so you you have had all this help, both with your kids and in your career. Um, but to what extent has being a parent affected your career as far as you can tell? So it's a funny question to ask because my entire life is 100% completely different than I ever could have imagined because I have my kids, but in a way that I think is is almost not helpful for other people. So, you know, I was working as a professor. I had a, I had a kid. I wrote a book about pregnancy, like on a whim. And I wrote the book because I had my kids. And then I wrote the second book because I had my kid. And so all of the, like, what do I do now? Like, I write about parenting. I talk about parenting. I write about data on parenting and pregnancy. Like, that is 100% about my kids. And it's true, I'm still an economics professor, but kind of my day-to-day is completely completely different. I mean, to answer the sort of underlying question of, like, to what extent was your basic career as an economist affected by your kids? Like, it was affected. Um, You know, there's there's a productivity gap. Uh, associated with my kids. Yeah, how how much do you notice that? You know, you can see it. I mean, it's hard to, a lot of stuff happens at the same time. Causality is difficult. But it, there's no question, like, I don't have as many hours to work as I did before 
kids. You do get more productive per hour. Um, I would say the productivity per hour went up, but you know, some of the yeah, just I we used to used to work a lot more. Uh, I used to work a lot more hours. Okay. Yeah. Is there anything else you notice besides productivity? I mean, I think a lot about my kids at work. Um, and not just because it's part of my job, but like I I there's a lot of like sort of child-oriented multitasking that occurs. And I think is is something people talk about this idea of like invisible labor. But you know, I think a lot about like my kids doctor's appointments, <laughs> whether when camp sign up is and stuff like that <laughs> at a time that I usually would have been uh, working. <laughs> right. Yep. Have you noticed any change in your kind of level of ambition? I, I wonder if I'm going to have a thing where once I have kids, I'm really excited to prioritize them even more than I expected. Um, if it might mean that I end up feeling less ambitious, being less motivated to work a bunch, uh, being less motivated to like apply for more senior roles. I, maybe. I don't know. Um, I think it, I mean, I think it, I think it varies. Um, like you, your ambition, maybe ambition is finite and some of it goes into your kids and, um, and you also you're tired because you don't sleep as much. Um, but I also think that you know, ambition is what it is. And there are a lot of people who are very excited about continuing to pursue whatever ambitious, certainly like in my case, my professional ambitions are a lot larger than they were before my kids. Cool. Cool. Okay. Um, okay. Let's turn to the topic of how people can make decisions about how much to work when they have kids. Um, so you frame this question as having kind of three parts. So one is what is best for your child? Two is what do you as a parent want to do? And three, uh, what are the implications of your choice for the family budget? I guess maybe to start, you argue that lots of people don't spend enough time on the question of what they actually want to do. Uh, can you explain what's going on there? I think many people frame this as simply what is good for my kid. And this is true across so many of the choices we make as parents that the first and like only thing you think about is like, is there any tiny impact on my kid in any direction? And then for sure, I will just like go with whatever is that, that answer. And by putting this idea of like, what do you want to do first? I think part of what I'm trying to convey is like, yeah, you should think about what works for your kid. But like, Actually, it's not just that this shouldn't be an afterthought. Like, this is the first question I ask yourself is like, what do I, like, what do I want? Do I want to be at my job? Do I not want to be at my job? We talked about before. So we talked before about the idea that like some people would like to leave the workforce when they have kids and like that's their preference and that's, and that's great. Uh, and that should be part of your question. And I think that the sort of societal pressures actually go in both directions. So we hear people will say like, well, I, you know, everyone just assumed as soon as I had kids, I would like quit the workforce. And then you will have people who will be like, well, everyone assumed that as soon as I had the kids, I would like get right back into it, but I didn't want to do that. And I think you're uh, thinking about that both in the immediate term, actually then even longer term. So I would often tell people, think about this again later. You know, I've had friends who went back to work when their kids were little and then basically quit when they were eight. And we're just like, you know what, this is the point at which like, I feel like I, you know, I want to be home with them. And like, this is, that's how I want my life to be structured now. Right. And those are all like very reasonable choices to make and things which should reflect how you feel about, or at least should be influenced by how you feel about, you know, what you want to be doing with your day. Yeah, right. 
it's funny because I was literally going to say, uh, let's start with what's best for the child. Um, but it sounds like you think we should start with what parents want. And a lot of our audience, again, is in this category of people who want to use their career to do a bunch of good in the world. Um, so figuring out how to keep the career pieces is a really important piece to a lot of them. Um, what advice do you have for people trying to think this through for their own family? We have this idea, like, before you have kids, like, well, I have my job, and I, like, go there for the hours of the work week, and I answer my emails, like, what do you mean, like, what, how do I want my jo- job to look like? That's the job. Right. And I think we we could use a kind of approach to be a little bit more flexible in our thinking, and this is an opportunity sometimes to be a little more flexible to say, like, you know, let me just think about how my day, you know, if I'm going to be at work for these hours, like how would my day look once I have the kid? Like what, how's that going to be structured? How does that feel? Like it's hard to know because you know how you're going to feel you have a kid, but like just to sort of think about like, what would we, like, what, how does it actually work? Like, how is it, how is my life going to work if I, you know, if I work, what is the other option? Is there literally just all or nothing? Is there an option that's, you know, come back at halftime? Is that available? Like many, probably you've never thought about that right? You've sort of never, like many people with sort of standard full-time jobs haven't actually thought about like, what would it look like if I worked half-time? Is that even something that you could, um, that, that you could do? So both kind of being flexible in your mind about what are the possible ranges of employment hours for you and for your partner, and literally like, what would that map onto in terms of how is your life going to operate? I think that's pretty valuable. It's also a question you'll want to revisit, uh, you know, over and over again, as you sort of figure out like what kind of childcare solution is working for us and how do we want to structure this? So I think it's just it's just a mistake to never take those moments and step back. And this is one of them, to step back and say, what are the possibilities? What do they look like? Yeah, right. Okay, so let's say you are taking a step back. Um, as a woman, what are some of those possibilities that one should be thinking about? So first, I just want to like step one thing back, which is like we talk so much about women. I think it's appropriate because these issues come up more for women. But when I talk to individual families about how to navigate this, I will often tell them like, don't ask the question, should there be a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-work mom or should mom go to part-time or whatever? Ask the question, what is the optimal configuration of adult work hours in your household? Because actually, there's a lot more flexibility than you think. And maybe that dad's job or other mom's job is the, you know, the the one where you could adjust a little more up and down. So I think we sort of get trapped in this idea that both we're fixing this for women, but also that like somehow women's job mm-hmm. to like figure it out. Like, you know, and and like I don't think that's that's exactly I don't think that's exactly right. Yep. Great point. Totally fair. Um, in that case, uh, what kinds of, I don't know, non-traditional things should parents be considering kind of as a team? I mean, I think the first question you often have is like jobs differ in their intensive margin flexibility, which is to say like they differ in the degree to which you could adjust uh, the number of hours. And so it's it's sort of worth when you're having this conversation saying like, well, what is, uh, you know, which of us could adjust a little bit? And I think that is going to influence like how you how you think about this um, because there are jobs where it's like, you know what, I'm trying to make partner at this law firm and like we mm-hmm. could wish the world was different, but like this is an 80 hours a week job and either I'm like in it or I'm not in it and there's no like going to 
30 hours a week kind of situation. And that's going to influence what you do. But there are a lot of jobs you have where, you know, both people could take some time. And I think this extends to thinking about, you know, parental leave and how do we structure parental leave across families. And the more we can have that flexibility across all the adults in the household, I think the better, rather than falling immediately into this sort of like one person is going to be the, you know, is going to keep going in exactly the way they were before. And the other person is going to adjust in some way that, you know, there's more, uh, there's more ranges. You know, if you want to, let's say if you want to work 60 hours a week across two people, that's 40 and 20, that's 30 and 30, that's 60 and zero. And uh, asking, you know, what are the different ways we could be at 60 hours? Probably a good idea. Yeah, right. Okay. So part one, think about what you as, as a, parenting team actually want for yourselves. And that's going to involve uh, how much time do you want to spend with your kids during certain periods? uh, And also how much do you want to be prioritizing work? And how much do you uh, have the flexibility to have this part-time kind of thing? Um, Then the next step you recommend is, is yeah, to the extent that you can thinking about what's best for uh, your child or children. Um, So I guess to start thinking about kind of the evidence about what's best for the child, um, what kinds of outcomes are we even talking about here? Is it like how well they'll do in school or like their lifetime outcomes or? It's basically test scores, maybe some behavioral outcomes. Some of these things maybe have some stuff about wages um, in the in the long term. All that tends to be pretty noisy. So I think to a first approximation, test scores are kind of the... When we talk about like how our kids doing, we mean test scores, which is frustrating, right? Because it's like, actually, I care about many things that are not test scores. Um, but unfortunately, that's all we can measure. So, okay. And do we think test scores reflect any of those other things? Like, a thing I care about is just like, does my child feel loved? Um, and maybe we think test scores are like a proxy for, are they well adjusted broadly? I mean, in a sense, I think that if you asked what does a kid at the most basic level, like what do kids need to thrive? And one aspect of thriving is like performing in some, like, you know, being able to like read, uh, you know, the things that they need to to thrive are things like having a loving, stable home, not being exposed to toxic stress, like those kind of things, which you do want to be like are things that you want for your kids in a very meaningful way. So, I, I mean, there's a sense in which like it's picking up some of it, but it's not everything. Like, you know, the difference between kids who are performing at the like 87th percentile and the 97th percentile, like that's not about you know, how love they feel. It's just like, whatever. That's like whether the window is open. I mean, so you just want to be a little <laughs> careful about what we learn from these. Yes. Okay. That that makes sense. So, so we're talking about test scores. And yeah, what kind of evidence do we have about this? So basically the childcare choices that you make, um, either choices about whether to work or not, even the choices about what to do with your kid, you know, during during the day, for the most part, those don't really impact their test scores very much in any in any direction. So, you know, some of these things may be a little bit positive or a little bit negative. Actually, the sort of stay-at-home, stay-at-not-stay-at-home parent stuff is pretty minor. So none of these things are very big. Like, even when you have effects, which are, we could argue, are almost always overstated because they're really correlations, they're not really causal, we don't have any randomized data. Like, even those numbers are so small, for the most part, that you really wouldn't they wouldn't be an important part of a consideration set. Wow. Okay. They're that small. Yeah. Are there exceptions? Are there like types of, I don't know, childcare or like uh, an amount of time a child might spend at home alone uh, that do make a difference? You can't leave your baby home alone. That's not allowed. 
I mean, there are some, I mean, sort of look at, at childcare and people ask me like, you know, is daycare good or daycare bad? Like, uh, low quality daycare does seem to show up sort of negatively. And, and by low quality, I mean, you know, the kids are not safe, um, or like they're not getting any attention. So like, which is unfortunately characteristic of some childcare settings. Um, but beyond that, there isn't something where you'd say like, this is the worst childcare structure. Uh huh. And so, there are small differences, but but really they are really so small that you wouldn't think they'd be yeah. particularly important considerations. Basically, like child, you know, like group daycare improves cognitive performance a bit. Maybe it worsens behavior a little bit. Both effects are pretty small. Okay, you know, parents like having one parent be part time sometimes shows up in test score data as a positive, but probably that's just about correlation and about what kind of families are. You know, and again, it's all very complicated because if people are working, they have more income and income buy stuff. And so, I don't know. Yeah, it's just surprising. And I think I do want to push on it, even though I just totally believe you. But um, I think I want to push on it because I have this feeling that um, society tells me that like my child going to the best possible preschool or daycare um, during their early years is incredibly important. And there are like... 12 to 18 month waiting lists for like preschools for like eight months old. Like, is that really all, or like a lot of that, is that really mostly hype? Yeah. Um, or really? Wow. I mean, here, so here's what I think is, I was just writing about this because so it's, it's on my mind. So there are two things that I think are simultaneously true, but hard to hold in your head at the same time. So one is that most of the choices the individual choices that you are going to make about your kid when they're little do not matter at all. So most of like whether you choose to breastfeed or sleep train or not sleep train or whether they go to the Montessori preschool or whether they go to the preschool down the street that has the like Reggio Amelia, these things, the effects, they are so small that they are very, very unlikely to matter. It's also true that the experience that kids have between zero and three is probably the most important that they will ever have to set them up for a life of success. And by the time you get kids at three, the difference between you know, kids who are raised in poverty and kids who are not, it's already there. You can read like Eva Moskowitz has a really nice thing in her book about the block achievement gap. The idea that when you get kids, when she gets kids at kindergarten, the kids who have grown up with fewer resources are not building block towers up. When she has them play with blocks, they build flat. And the kids who are raised with more resources are building up. And so there's so much that happens before five. And yet these things that you're like, you know, well, how do I pick the preschool? This one has the master's degree. It's like, that's a completely effing irrelevant. And the answer is that there are things that are relevant, and they are having a stable place to come home to, having some loving caregiver who is paying attention to you, could be a daycare provider, can be a nanny, can be a parent, can be another parent, can be a grandparent. It's like having somebody that feels stable or seven people who feel stable, having enough to eat every day, having enough sleep, having access to childcare, not being exposed to abuse and trauma and toxic stress. That's the whole thing. And the thing is, you're not asking about those things because you're not, that's not a thing you're thinking about choosing. That's already something your kid is going to have because of the privilege of where they're going to be born into. And so I think it's like, that feels to me so important because we spend all this time in policy space. The people making the policy are spending all of this time in their heads with like these decisions that 
feel really fraught, but actually are completely irrelevant. And we've sort of missed that there are things we could impact with policy by having better paid leave for everybody, by having better childcare subsidies, by giving people like, by like all of those things we could be mattering for. And those things really do matter. And yet we're not talking about them because they seem so obvious to the sets of people who are like making the policy. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, it's great. It's very compelling and and reassuring. Again, I do feel like a really big part of me believes you and another part of me is like, oh, but I have so many stories about like, I don't know, people remembering that their parents worked super, super late and like felt sad or neglected by that. I mean, I also think like, you're going to find, it was really got to be careful with anecdote because you're also going to find people who are like, well, my mom, you know, quit her job so she could be home every minute with me. And then I was the repository for all of her failed dreams. And I wish she had had a job. So she wasn't like constantly on me about how like I had to, you know, be like, so, I mean, I think it's, it's tricky. Like many people don't like their upbringing. And one of the features of humans is that we're always trying to like fix the stuff. Right. You know, that we feel that our parents messed up. And so I think we do want to be a little bit careful about, and similarly, I will tell you, when you have your kids, like my son, the other day, I told him I wasn't, I walk my kids to school almost every day. I'm home for dinner every single night. I rarely travel. I like really, I spend a lot of time with them. The other day I told my son that, that I would see him in the morning, but I wasn't going to be able to walk into school because I was going on my long run and I wanted to leave early enough to whatever. And he told me, do you care about your long run more than you care about me? Oh, God. So no matter how much time you spend with your kids, sometime they'll ask you that. And the thing is, as a, would you have to have the fortitude as a parent to be like, I love you more. I would choose you over running. But for tomorrow, I care more about my long run than I do about you. And so you'll have to walk to school by yourself. Yeah. Okay. I think I am. I think you're right. It totally uh, sounds consistent with what I what I actually think about these anecdotes that uh, most people have complaints about their childhood. And mostly when people uh, have like really, really strong complaints, it is because things have gone more wrong at the level uh, that you're talking about with like stability and like basic needs being met or not. I guess, yeah, I'm curious if there's anything else that might matter besides those basic things. Not spanking your kids. Okay. No physical punishment. Reading reading shows up, reading to your kids, talking to them, but not like talking in an obsessive, weird way where you have to like narrate every diaper change. But we do see that's probably something like the number of words kids hear tend to show up. Mm-hmm. Those are kind of it. Okay. So then maybe most of the work is in making the decision that is right for you as parents, making sure that your kids' basic needs are met, and then finding ways to uh, deal with your guilt and panic about whether or not you're doing the right things. Yes, that seems like the most important thing to work on. Cool. I guess to the extent that some of our listeners who who d- will want to um, continue working many hours or full time uh, after having kids, uh, one of one of the big solutions is to have help, and uh, that creates this huge financial consideration. Um, how does the cost of childcare compare to the cost of the lost income caused by staying home with kids? Kind of depends what your income is. I mean, I think this is, you know, this is something where I guess the the sort of the way I would say it to people is like, you actually need to write it down because it is not, this is something where we're just talking about numbers and you could compare them and we know what after tax income is. And, you know, you can sort of work out 
what is feasible in different scenarios, different kinds of childcare cost different amounts. The one piece people often forget that I think is worth thinking about is that the kids get typically a bit cheaper over time. So, you know, once kids are in public school, that costs less money um, than, you know, childcare and your income goes up over time. So this is like, there's a, there's an immediate calculation, like what, what happened in the first year. And then there's a kind of like slightly further calculation, which I would encourage people to do. So do this on a five-year or 10-year window and ask the question of, you know, are we coming out ahead on working, thinking about the fact that you get paid more over time and kids get less expensive. So it's a mistake to do it only the like first year. Right. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. And yeah, I guess there are loads of different childcare options. Um, so there's daycare versus nanny at the highest level. I guess do those differ in kind of what's best for your child? Not in an especially meaningful way. Um, you know, with daycare, I think that again, sort of focusing having daycare that is high quality does matter, and so that means like that kids seem safe, that there are like caregivers who are paying attention to them. So there's, uh, these are mostly things you can sort of see, basically, if you're visiting. And then there are maybe some sort of positive, pretty short-term, but some positive cognitive benefits to enrollment in daycare, um, kind of when you get closer to school age, so, you know, above 18 months or two, uh, and maybe some slight negative effects on behavior from sort of earlier on. But both both numbers are sort of pretty small. And if you like aggregated over the whole, if you were like, you're going to be in daycare the whole time, it's basically a wash. Okay. Okay. Um, so then it's basically what can you afford? What works with your lifestyle? Yeah. And I think both of those, there's like a bunch of pieces of this that are actually pretty important. So one is like net, like an annie, it tends to be more expensive, uh, on average, it can be both more and less convenient. So in some ways it's quite a bit more convenient, but you know, it's, they can also be sick. Mm -hmm. It is, I think in some ways for people, the part of it that you don't always reflect on that I think is worth thinking about is this a, it's a more complicated relationship than some. You basically, you're, the idea of having a single person who works for you, who also is with your kid all the time um, and is sort of like a third parent, but also is an employee that is a dynamic that some people find more comfortable than others. Um, and I certainly think that there are many more people who feel more comfortable with the idea of, of daycare or home daycare or something because it feels a little bit more like, okay, there's home and then there's school. Right. Whereas with a nanny, it's kind of blurred. And and then there's shades of gray in this, right? There's like, there's home, you know, there's home daycare. There's like nanny shares. There's all kinds of ways, all kinds of good ways to structure your childcare arrangements. Yeah. So... What exactly makes people uncomfortable about the nanny setup? Your kid is going to call you by the nanny's name some of the time. And I I mean, that's not that's not the whole explanation, but I think it gives a flavor of of kind of the type of thing that some people are make some people like like it will are they're spending eight hours a day with this other person, more time than they spend with me. They spend with this other person. And then sometime they're going to call you the nanny's name. And that, I think, for some people makes you feel like, wow, I'm really pretty second class here. Like, right. And, and I think the truth is what you need to tell yourself is like, wow, I am so lucky that my kid is so happy with this other person that, like, they're calling me by, like, you know, when they need something, they're, like, asking, like, that is such a gift. And I'm so grateful for it. right. But actually, that frame is pretty hard, can be pretty hard in the moment for some people. I mean, I've never, it's never like 
I don't know. This is like one thing I really like a gift from my mother is that like, this is not the kind of thing that she felt ever felt guilty about. And so I just like, you don't either. I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. They'll call me, like, they'll like cycle through the names with me. We've had a variety of, it was like Claire, like, not Claire. <laughs> yes. I, I can already tell I'm going to be the kind of person whose feelings get hurt by that. So that is something I'd never thought of before. Yeah. So I think that's a good way to summarize kind of what, what people will find difficult about this. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay. So another topic that comes up for people thinking about how to balance their desire to have children with their uh, desire to be kind of productive and ambitious in their careers is when to have kids. So whether to delay um, and I guess how long you delay can affect the odds of getting pregnant. But I've also heard a bunch of conflicting things about when your fertility starts to decline and what the impact of aging is on how hard it will be to get pregnant. Um, What data do we have on that? So your fertility begins to decline, you know, around 16. um, And then it's just a slow roll of decline until menopause. Uh, So there's this sort of myth of like 35 is a cliff. And I think people interpret that like up until 35, everything is like the same as it was when you were 20. And then after 35, like you're basically dead. And like those things... Neither of those things is true. Um, You know, it's harder to get pregnant at 30 than at 20 on average, harder to get pregnant at 35 than at 30. Uh, But it isn't, there isn't actually a cliff and there's not even really a change in in sort of slope. Um, You know, so as you get it, at some point you stop being able to get pregnant. You know, most people are in menopause. The average age of menopause is 51. Um, There's a period before that, you know, in the mid to mid 40s, dip more difficult, not possible. But, and again, this is all happening because as your eggs age, they acquire mutations. And so it becomes more difficult to, your body is less likely to ovulate and the eggs that it is ovulating are more likely to have chromosomal defects that would be inconsistent with birth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're sort of fighting the kind of like biological clock changing. And also that, you know, when you're 22 might not be the best time to uh, to have had a baby. Um, I think my guess is that people overthink the optimality and there's some idea that like there would be some perfect time and, you know, kids don't disappear, you know, just because you got like a good four month break where you think like, you know, you're like, things are going to be quieter at work. Like the kids don't go away. Mm -hmm. Like like they'll go away later. Um, They're still going to be around. And so it, it's a much broader decision. I do think, you know, people, people in my profession, you know, people will wait till they have tenure and that, you know, I can definitely see the value of that. I can really see value of that as somebody who didn't, uh, didn't wait to get tenure, but, you know, it does impact, you know, potentially impact fertility. And so it's a trade-off. Yeah. I, I definitely feel like I've heard the myth of fertility falling off at 35. Um, is that just, like that meme got spread at some point, but is just empirically wrong. There's some quite old, like there it's based on some quite old data. And, you know, because they sort of chunk people in ages, you used to get this idea that because that, that there's a chunk, like they're 35 to 40. I don't know. It's just, it's based on elderly data, elderly data about elderly people. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. But what we do know is that it basically declines somewhat linearly, and that at some point it might get hard enough that you might not be able to get pregnant naturally. And then at some point after that, um, you might not get be able to get pregnant at all. Yes. And then how does how much does IVF change this picture? Um, does it 
radically delay kind of that period when it might be really hard to get pregnant naturally, but could be possible? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a tricky question. So, so IVF is an incredible technology. It is enable people to become parents who wouldn't be able to, you know, it's like, it's so many aspects of IVF that are really extraordinary. It's not a magic wand. um, And there are some things, some fertility issues for which IVF is really, really good. So if you have someone who is sort of not ovulating um, or has a blocked fallopian tube, that's the most obvious one. If you have someone who has like, whose fertility issue is their fallopian tube is blocked. IVF has got a real good chance because there's nothing else wrong, right? There's an obvious reason why they're not getting pregnant. If you could just take out the eggs and put them back in in the right place, like that would, you know, that's going to change success rates, right? If we think about IVF as a way to deal with like aging, there is, you know, there you're hyperstimulating the ovaries. They produce a lot of eggs. And then hopefully some of those are good. But as you are older, the eggs that are coming out are still less likely to be good than they were when you were younger. So I think it's like, there's sometimes this idea that like IVF is a way to like sort of sustain your fertility forever. And that's, you know, not, that's not quite true. Uh, There are things you can do with IVF that will sustain your fertility for much longer. For example, donor eggs. Mm -hmm. So the uterus doesn't, you know, your uterus's ability to carry a baby doesn't decay anywhere near the same rate as your eggs do. And so if you, you know, if you're 55, but you got eggs from a 25-year-old, like, that's cool. Um, you know, there's ways to make that work. Yeah, I guess, uh, does that mean that freezing your eggs young um, so that you can implant them later is a, makes a big difference? Definitely means that's a possibility as the thing that would make a difference. Um, we actually don't have a lot of, like, long-term follow-up of those those experiences and, you know, the the freezing of the eggs, different from the freezing of the embryos and the stability. And, like, this is a new enough technology that I think it's hard to say, like, that's the the deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I guess broadly, what advice do you have for people trying to decide? Um, I guess, yeah, the kind of person I have in mind is someone who's like, my career is super, super important to me. I feel like it's not the right time for me to have kids. Um, but I am also scared that I won't be able to later on. Should I rely on IVF to, uh, make it possible for me to wait? How should people be thinking about this at all? I mean, I think that like there are a set of people for whom I would say, you know, if it like maybe you try to try to freeze some eggs, try to like take some, you know, do something that that has the potential to preserve fertility. Um, But, you know, but I also think there's a little bit of of a kind of there's no secret option C here, which is like the choices that you've outlined are like I could have a career hit right now to have a kid, which is something I want to do. Or I could wait and run the risk that, you know, it'll be more difficult to to have a family. Those are two options, both of which have good things and not good things. And there's no secret option C. Uh, and so you kind of got to pick. Got it. Maybe pushing on to our final topic, um, which is uh, moving away from the intersection of children and careers. You talk about the impact of children on people's relationships in your book. Yeah, maybe starting out, what are the kind of... The stereotypes I have um, are just like having kids makes marital or non-marital relationships between parents worse. What does the data say? Are people less happy? Yeah, people are less happy after kids. Um, There's a sort of decline after you have your kids. It's worse in the first year of the first kid, and then it kind of slowly rebounds, um, but very slowly. Does it recover fully? Yeah, by the time you have grandchildren. So it's like a long (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, but it gets much better. Like it recovers a lot in the first few years. I mean, the first year, okay. the first year of parenthood um, tends to be really, really challenging for people. And I think partly that's because people are tired. Partly it's because there's just so much more to have conflict about than there was before. And, you know, that's just like, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Okay. Not everybody. So I think it's worth saying, and I had a really nice essay in Parent Data uh, a few weeks ago from someone who was like, you know, yes, it's true that things decline, but it doesn't decline for everybody. So this idea that like it's inevitable, it's both that we want to be prepared for the possibility that like this will, you know, and you want to sort of think about how you could scaffold it, but also like not everybody hates their husband after they have kids. (laughs) Uh, uh, uh. as the title of the book suggests. Right. Okay. Nice. Um, And it's not, it's like pretty clear that it's not just that people become less happy in their relationships over time. No, no, it's quite discreet because it happens kind of right when people have kids and yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's quite discreet at the time of having kids. Yeah. And is it a big effect? Yes. Oh, (laughs) yeah. I mean, I think, yes, it's a big effect. I don't know. It's a little hard to tell like how you measure happiness, but yeah, like it's like, yeah. Okay. You definitely notice it. Got it. <laughs> okay. And the things that cause it are at least partly more conflict, more things to have conflict about. And that looks, yeah. Can you say what that looks like? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, so first of all, you could ask what's protective. So people who are happier in their marriages before uh, are likely to sort of have like smaller declines. And people who's, who have planned, when the kid is planned, that's associated with smaller declines. So you can sort of see from that, like what, some of what's going on, which is like, if this is a kind of, like we find ourselves in a circumstance that we hadn't planned to be in, that leads to some resentments. Um, I I think, you know, in general, though, like there is more to do when you have a kid than there was before. So you all of a sudden, you've introduced a lot of new tasks. You have less money because you're spending all this money on childcare, as discussed. So there's just way more constraints. And then... Like, all of a sudden, doing the right thing about this baby is more important to you than anything has ever been in your whole life. But you have no idea what to do, but you feel very strongly about your opinion. And I think that that's, like, for many people, this sort of moment of, like, we don't agree on what to do. Neither of us has any idea what actually we should do because we have never done this before, but we're both 100% sure that our idea is correct. And we're like arguing about something that couldn't have, nothing has ever been more important. And I think that's that's a recipe for conflict. Yes, but that way that sounds incredibly, incredibly hard. Yeah. And you, oh, you haven't slept. Also, you're tired. Oh, God. Like, yes. Yeah, you're tired. Basically, the main conflict between me and my partner ever is just I haven't slept well enough. So this does sound terrible. Right. No, us too. That was always like, I, or I, my feet were cold. That's like basically <laughs> like if I haven't slept and my feet are cold or I'm hungry, that's like, you know, but you sort of learn those things. It might be like stuff a sandwich in your partner's face. But this is kind of new. You're tired. You don't remember about the sandwich. Uh-huh. And it's the most important and thing, it's the most important you've thing ever that ever happened. Exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. And you've already said some things that are kind of protective. Um, but for people, let's say people have already um, achieved some of those. So like this thing is planned. Yeah. Um, we like each other. And yeah, we, we hope we like each other in advance. Um, is there another kind of single big thing that you could do to counteract some of the negative impacts of having children on a relationship? Yeah. So one is to try to sleep. I realize that's like, I sort of harp on this, but like, you know, it's, it's really difficult. It's, everyone's pretty sleep deprived, but sort of thinking about are there are there things you can put in place to try to get 
a little more sleep, that tends to be tends to be helpful. Actually, one of the main things that when you sleep train your kids, that enables parents to sleep more. And actually, one of the main outcomes in like randomized trials is an improvement in marital satisfaction. So, okay, sleep. Um, nice. The other thing I would say, which is much more concrete and something you probably can do, um, is marital checkups. Mm. So there's some evidence that like basically having a sort of at I mean, I think most of the data is about like every six months or something, like a time when you sort of talk about like what's what's going well, what's not going well, what could we do differently, sometimes with a therapist, sometimes not. That that shows up as improving, improving satisfaction in marriage. I think there are versions of that which you can implement pretty quickly. And so I often I was talking to somebody the other day who's having a kid, who just had a kid actually. And I was like, the the thing I would do is right now put bi-weekly meetings on your calendar for after the baby to talk about like what could happen differently, Hmm. right? Because it's very easy to like only have interactions in a hot state when you're, you know, upset or when you're like, and just to have a moment that you've planned in advance to sit down and be like, okay, how are things going? Like what's going well, what's not going, you know, what could we do differently? That's kind of a short-term version of these like larger checkups. Yeah. Okay. Nice. That sounds great. I like it. It's concrete. I feel like I can do it. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I guess zooming out, it feels to me like so much of, so, so many of these decisions for your relationship, for your child's well-being, for your professional life have much less to do with like a thing having like really measurable, huge negative impacts on your child um, or even your relationship and much more to do with like thinking about this like big picture that you talk about in the family firm about like what you want your lives to look like. Um, and yeah, do you want to explain why, why kind of zooming out and thinking about that big picture is so important? I think there are a couple of reasons. And so when I talk about the big picture, I mean sort of two different things. So one is trying to state in some way, like what's your, what's your values? What's your mission statement? There's different ways to conceptualize this. But thinking about, like, what is a touchstone that we can agree on? Um, and we, you know, I mean, it's it's like the book's about sort of running your business, like running your family like a business. Like, there's a thing in your business where it's really valuable to be like, this is what we're trying to do. We're all, like, rowing in the same direction. And then when there's conflict, there's both a touchstone of, like, recognizing, okay, we don't agree about this, but we're all trying to get to the same place. So, like, we there's, like, a way in which we know we're, we're aligned mm-hmm. and things that can we can come back to in making in making decisions that we've said like these are our three most important values these are like the things that are kind of that are linking our our family so i think there's that piece and then i think there's these pieces there's a piece about it's kind of like just thinking about what you'd want your day to look like um and what you want your your weekends to look like your tuesdays to look like and and there it feels so like in the weeds in a sense but like if you're unhappy every tuesday like that's one seventh of the days. And if it's also <laughs> on Thursday, that's two sevenths of the days, you know? And so th- thinking about this is about scaffolding something where most of the days you will enjoy what you do. And it's an opportunity, and both of these things are an opportunity with your partner, if your partner, if you're parenting with someone else, to have conflict early and have conflict in a cold state. Right. So if we have if we have a disagreement about what our weekends should look like, if you think that you know, you like your ideal weekend with your kids is like two soccer games and like three birthday parties. And your partner thinks the ideal weekend is like kayaking with the family in like a, on a cabin in Maine. 
Like those things are not the same. And every time you come up on a weekend and he wishes he was kayaking and you're like dragging people around to these soccer games, that's a recipe for conflict because he's going to be mad that he's not kayaking. You're going to feel like, why am I always driving to the soccer games? It's like, but I didn't want to go to the soccer games. Like I want to be kayaking, you know? And so you're eventually going to fight about it. Right. All of this advice is just bring that fighting in the front, right? Where you can explain to them why you think soccer is really important and he can explain why he thinks kayaking is really important. And it's not necessarily that, you know, you're going to come to, like, maybe there's a compromise. Half the time you kayak, kayak on Sundays, I don't know. But uh, but there's a sense in which you've you've been able to discuss it when you're not fighting. And so I think sometimes people are reluctant to have these conversations because they think they're hard and they think that like they're they're not going to agree. Like I don't want to people have told me like I don't want to talk about this stuff with my partner because I know we won't agree. Like that's exactly when you should talk about it. Yep. If you know you're going to agree, who cares? Like if everyone is super aligned, like maybe you don't need to have this conversation. It's when we disagree that it is most valuable to have these discussions. Yeah. And not talking about it isn't going to make it go away. Not going to make it go away. You don't get to not fight. Yeah, I'm actually really keen to do this with my partner. Um, we're, yeah, we're getting married next year and we plan to have kids soon after. Um, how do you kind of, are there, are there prompts you recommend for thinking about what you want your big picture to be and, and what you want those day-to-day kind of things to be like? Should I just journal? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I often, so in, in the family farm, I have a bunch of worksheets. <laughs> I like a good worksheet. Um, and I think some of it is about like e- like sort of separating. I think there's there's like a trick people use in like family therapy where you like write stuff down separately and come together. So if I asked you like, what is the mission statement you imagine for our family? Could you write it down? Could he write it down? What are the three most important things? And some some of this I try to get really, really practical. Like here's a calendar. What do you want to look like? Nice. Um, or, you know, here are like the three most important things to me to do every day during the week, every day on the weekends, whatever. And so rather than be like, there's a temptation sometimes, I like a mission statement, but there's a temptation sometimes to be like, don't be evil. Okay, but like, don't be evil is a fine mission statement, but it's not like recipe for a search engine. Like you gotta be like, you gotta also do the recipe for the search engine. Great. Okay, so the family firm is is where we'll go to for that. Um, we've just got time for one final question. All right. Um, I'm curious, what are some ways that you've, or what's the kind of biggest way you've changed your mind over the last few years? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I think for me, the biggest like mental change has been about how I see what I can contribute to the world. You know, I spent a long time trying to be an economist. I'm still an economist, but like I spent a long time thinking like my best contribution to the world is going to be through like papers and journals. Um, and I think I've realized that that's not true. Um, and I, there's a lot there in sort of thinking about like, what can I bring? What can I bring to the world that's going to help the most people? And how can I invest in doing that more of the time? That's a great answer. And um, yeah, just from from the fact that so many people on my team have given me very, very specific examples of how you've made a huge difference to how much guilt they feel or oh, that's awesome. how worried they feel about a particular parenting decision they're making. That is clearly working very well. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. My guest today has been Emily Oster. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed that, you should definitely check out Emily's own podcast. It's called Parent Data with Emily Oster. And to give you a flavor of what to expect, 
The first two episodes of 2024 explore how children learn to speak and how to ease back into exercise postpartum. And on another note, as I mentioned at the start of the show, the 80,000 Hours Advising Team has capacity to speak to more people one-on-one about how to have an impactful career. Um, So this could be great for anyone just starting out or someone who wants to change careers or maybe someone who has a big decision and wants to talk through their questions and uncertainties. On a call, our advisors can help you review your options and make connections and find a fulfilling job that does good for the world. Uh, So you can learn more about what to expect and apply to speak to an advisor at 80,000hours.org slash speak. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. The audio engineering team is led by Ben Cordell with mastering and technical editing by Simon Monsoor and Milo McGuire. Additional content editing by myself and Katie Moore, who also puts together full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more. Those are available on our website. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. (laughs) 